0: Combera
1: Franchisography, the podcast that digs deep and boldly goes into the entire filmographies of Hollywood's biggest film franchises. I'm Scott Carelli. I'm Nick Jimenez. Today, we are continuing our miniseries on the Star Trek franchise with the sequel that defined the next generation films. It's 1996's Star Trek First Contact. And we have a guest joining us to talk about time traveling back to the future, Borg infestations, and taking a leak his musician and track aficionado Scott Tofty, welcome.
2: Leak, I'm not detecting any leak.
1: (laughs) I that that line that is the line in this movie that lives rent free in my head. It just there's a couple of them for me. That's that's definitely one of them. The line must be drawn here, this far, no farther. Another (laughs) one. Yeah, well, I mean, that's a classic. That's like I feel like that's like Picard's like "Ah," con. Like that's his yeah. Yeah. Yeah,
3: this and ent- this entire movie for me is made up of secret quotes. Uh huh. Oh, yeah. I can get behind that. Um, <laughs> that's what they're trying to do. Stop first contact. That lives rent free in my head. Get Actually, my I bridge. never read it. <laughs> Actually, I never read it. <laughs> uh, it's a good movie. <laughs> it, yeah, it's a banger.
1: Uh, it's a great movie. Uh, So, so, uh, Tofty, you're a Trekkie. Uh, tell everybody about your your background uh, with Star Trek and I guess, I guess Next Gen in particular and, and this film even more. We're really – there's like three layers happening here with this story. My Star Trek is Next Generation. I grew up – my older
2: sister is 18 years older than me. So by the time I was born um, and Next Generation came out in, what, 87 or something like that, I was like two, three years old. She was already like a high school, college student watching it. So it was always on. Like mm-hmm. constantly in my house growing up, Jean-Luc Picard. My sister's in love with Jean-Luc Picard. She had a cardboard cutout of Jean-Luc Picard. So everything I know about Star Trek starts with Next Generation and then branches off from there over the years. So these movies, the next-gen movies, have a special place in my heart. And though they're like 60% cumulatively terrible, this one is 100% awesome. I To this day, like it's the best – Star Trek thing that's ever been done in my head.
1: Um, I do not disagree with you. Uh I I, you know, we've been watching all of these and I've been having a great time and I'm like, wow, Wrath of Khan is great, you know, obviously. Voyage Home, so much fun. Star Trek Six, Wowzers, what a great movie. But every time I watch First Contact, I, I'm just instantly like, oh, well, this is my favorite Star Trek movie. There's just there's no there's absolutely no competition. Like this is the best one.
3: <laughs> yeah. Nick, what are your thoughts? I, I as I mentioned last week, I have a a personal history with this one. This may well have been my first exposure to Star Trek. Mm-hmm. I uh, I had this on VHS as a kid and would rewatch it over and over again and really to me defined what a lot of Trek is, like philosophically, thematically, uh stylistically mm-hmm. and what's really cool is now having gone on this trek ourselves scott of starting at the beginning and going through and also like watching episodes of the series to help with context it's only strengthened that this is like yeah like prime trek mm-hmm. and like works so well and it's kind of like in the way that we look at stuff like the dark knight As or like Logan as being like the quintessence of why we find these franchises so engaging. Mm -hmm. I think, I think First Contact does that.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. I mean, I think they went out of their way to make a movie that anybody could watch. Um, which I, you know, I know that, uh, uh, Moore and Braga were like really proud of that fact that, you know, after working on the show for so long they they made a movie that people could watch without having ever seen the show <laughs>
3: you know um oh yeah and it's all there cuz like mm-hmm. you know as as i mentioned on generations i've seen very very little of next gen the series mm-hmm. and yet in this movie it's all there the relationship between picard and data the crew yeah it's it, it, it it's really uh it's really impressive how they yeah, they managed to capture the spirit of such like a big you know, long lasting show at this point and distill it into like an under two hour movie. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Um, for me as like a kid that
1: was raised on next generation, uh, from my dad, the Borg specifically, you know, I, I think that if you're not, if you're only aware of Star Trek through through pop culture osmosis, and I think a lot of people, especially at this period of time, sort of early 90s, they just sort of saw Star Trek as like the anti-Star Wars. Like, oh, that's, there's like Star Wars, which is like big and exciting. And then there's Star Trek, which is like boring people sitting at tables talking about doing stuff and never actually doing anything. And so, you know, having sort of absorbed that pop culture osmosis, of Star Trek, and then being constantly you know surprised when my dad actually showed me Star Trek, and I'm like, oh actually this rules the 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 concept of the Borg was sort of like anti Star Trek in a lot of ways because it was just so kind of metal and like interesting, you know <laughs> <laughs> um and, and it so, works on two levels, yeah, yeah, and so um, you know it was it was the Borg is just such a uh like a Ridley Scott sort of like alien you know xenomorph kind of concept um and it's obviously it's born out of uh you know someone on the Star Trek staff being a big fan of Doctor Who um and and the Cybermen I mean or Bumblebees Well, because really, that's what they are, right? They're just bees. Well, I mean, too, but a lot of that wasn't wasn't introduced until this movie. Like a lot of that—that's very true. Um, the hive and the queen and all that stuff. Um, that all came from this. So, um, you know, I I I I was a Borg obsessed kid. I mean, obviously, like best of both worlds. My dad showed that to me and was just like, can you believe this shit? Like, just like (laughs) I had to wait three months, you know, and just losing his mind. And 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 I was like, the Borg are the coolest thing I've ever seen in my entire life. And then when First Contact happened and it was announced that the Borg were going to be the villain, I remember my dad calling me and being like, they just announced the new Star Trek movie. The villain is going to be the Borg, and I was like, "What?" Um, you know, like as like a uh, as like a ten year old kid, I was just like losing my mind. Um, and uh, and this was the very first movie that I saw multiple times in the theaters ever, um, setting up a pattern yep. for the rest of your life. <laughs> yep, yep. I think I saw I think I saw First Contact like three or four times, which is. A lot of times for an eleven-year-old boy to go see a movie by themselves, um, especially a new release. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, Where did you get your money, Scott? Well, so I, I'm pretty sure. Paper Root. I'm pretty sure I saw it <laughs> twice in regular run, and then I saw it like two to three times at a, at a dollar theater after that. Um, just like oh, I got, I can go see First Contact again right now because you know <laughs> back then it took like nine. Nine to to twelve months for a movie to hit video, um, yeah. So yeah, but when this came out, this was like one of the first like VHSs I bought. I bought like the widescreen version. Did you, you, buy did you
2: have the VHS with the holographic front card? Oh yeah, yeah, yeah.
1: yeah. <laughs>
2: bought it. I think blo- I still have that somewhere. <laughs> bought it at
1: Blockbuster with the widescreen banner over the top of it. You know, um, nice. I I absolutely uh, love 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 this movie, and it is. Certainly my favorite Star Trek movie. You know, I think we've been running through this whole uh, mini series, and and, you know, you watch each of them subsequently and it's like, wow, Wrath of Khan really is like a really phenomenal Star Trek movie. Wow. Voyage Home is so much fun. You know, oh, wow. Star Trek six. What a movie. This one's so underrated. People don't talk about how good this one is but like i always had my eye on the prize like i was like i but i think first contact is still the best one and uh having rewatched it for this it's just sort of a no contest i think this is just yeah this is the best star trek movie full stop um i would agree yeah which is surprising cuz like i am one of those people who i i i am a sucker for the iconography of of the original series crew and and the original series you know, uh, visuals and everything. And so, you know, I, 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 it's crazy to me that my favorite Star Trek movie is a next gen movie. However, it's so damn good. Like I, I, you know, I don't even know what to say about it.
2: Well, but, but again, it works as not just a Star Trek movie. Like it works as a film. Totally. It's, it's got this A-plot, B-plot structure that, like, not a lot of Star Trek movies really do that well, I don't think. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's it, – and, like, everything works. It just works. It works on so many – it does all the things you want to see from next-gen. You get the holodeck. You get, you know, space battle. You you get all the good things from next generation that you want. The Borg, right? Data being robot. Um, Picard being literary. <laughs> and it gives them to you in small enough morsels that you're just like, ah, oh, that's right. That's why I love that show so much. Absolutely. It's perfect.
1: It's a perfect movie. Absolutely.
2: Um, and for some weird reason, it doesn't really come off dated. Like, there's a few of the effect shots in it that I was like, mm, okay. But for the most part, like visually, holds up.
1: I, it's interesting because I think I think a lot of movies from this era hold up, and I think it's the, it's because they didn't go like fully into CGI. Because they know they knew they couldn't handle it, so you would get like a mixture of like CGI and practical effects, you know, CGI and miniatures, and that always holds up better, you know. The only
2: thing that took me out of it was the Deanna Troy uh, Jennifer Aniston haircut. That was about it. (laughs) That's true. (laughs) That was that was like the only thing.
1: That's true. I did notice, with the exception of Jonathan Frakes, everyone else in the cast is like. Thinner and leaner and just like everyone was just like, ah, uh, you know what? Uh, movies are less forgiving than TV is what it seems like. <laughs> and I should probably lose some weight or something. Um, yeah. You just you definitely notice that. Um, yeah. Yeah. But uh, uh, so. So. OK, so going back to um, Generations for a moment, uh, you know, Generations, was made on the heels of of uh, Star Trek VI, The Undiscovered Country, which had a budget of 30000000 million, didn't quite break $100 million at the box office. So, you know, it was kind of a disappointment considering it's supposed to be the last one with that original crew. But, you know, everyone, again, pop culture at the time was just like, why are we letting these geriatrics run an action franchise? Um, and I think it hurt the, it hurt the, the bottom line at the box office. Well, you go to Star Trek Generations, it has a budget of 35 million. It ends up making 118. Um, and so, you know, Paramount's very happy and, uh, they're like, okay, now let's see what this next gen can crew crew can do on their own. And, um, Let's let's yeah let's let's see what this next gen crew can do on their own. Sorry, Nick gave me a fa- gave me a face because he was like, I don't think what you said made any sense. Um, <laughs> let's
2: see what they can crew.
1: Um and and so uh, they greenlight this movie and you know uh, Berman Braga and more they reconvene and they're talking about like what should this movie be. Um Berman. Really wanted a time travel story because they hadn't done a ton of time travel in Next Gen, and he just felt like because they had the holodeck for that sort of thing most of the time. Um, Can I ask and, a question real quick, Scott? Yeah how how much time travel is enough
2: time travel in a Star Trek franchise? Because I to me personally, the time travel episodes are great, but they are also like an easy way to be great. Mm-hmm. You got like two of them in original series plus Star Trek Four. Then you get yesterday's Enterprise, which is technically time travel. Mm-hmm. You had the one with Mark Twain, which mm-hmm. is time travel, and then you have Generations, which is kind of time travel, which is the prior movie. Like, is the Magic Number Four? Is that it? Is that what we're
1: for? <laughs> I don't know. Um, <laughs> I, I'm not. I'm not sure. But I I know that I know that Berman wanted to do a time travel one with this one. Um, but. Uh, when you go, but like uh, Braga and more, they were desperate to do the Borg because they felt that, you know, the best of both worlds was their most successful um, pair of episodes and uh, their most successful story. And um, they wanted to revisit these characters that they had popped in again a few times over the course of next gen, but just a few. and But never like. In a full-scale invasion, sort of full-scale way that it was in in uh, Best of Both Worlds. Um, this, like, sort of iconic two-parter. Uh, Nick, you watched Best of Both Worlds for the first time, right, prior to watching this?
3: Yes, I watched both parts of the Best of Both Worlds, as well as Season 2's Q-Who.
1: Yeah, so... What did you what did you think about the Borg in those episodes um before getting into this?
3: I'll tell you what. Um very, you know, totally recontextualized the Borg's place in Star Trek lore for me. Mm-hmm. Uh very glad I I I watch all three of these episodes. So for the listeners, um the the kind of broad plot of Q Q Who is Q, this kind of mischievous entity that can do anything, bend reality, uh, comes to the Enterprise and is like, hey, let me join your crew. I want to find out what it's like on Starfleet. And Picard's like, no, we can handle it. We're good. And <laughs> Q's like, are you sure? You're like the furthest out that any human has ever been. You have no idea what kind of Eldritch horrors wait <laughs> in the in the waves of space. And Picard's like... I think we got it. Number one's like 6'5".
1: <laughs> and, and very
3: beardy. Very beardy. And Have you seen
1: this guy? He's built like a brick house.
3: Look at him. He's a brick shit house. <laughs> sure am. Thank you. Thank you, Cap. Speaking of secret quotes. <laughs> and um, then, uh, that's the one I remember. And then he, uh, Q is like, okay, challenge accepted. And he like blips the Enterprise into a completely different quadrant of the galaxy that they were in, and they encounter the Borg, like a lone cube, and it's like, and they're completely outmatched. It's unlike anything they've ever even read about, and it was just really cool to see the Borg in that context of this, this unknowable, almost Lovecraftian and horror that mm-hmm. the Enterprise is just wholly unprepared for, and uh, and like their design is very '90s and cool. And yeah, I can understand if i were watching these episodes as a kid in the 90s I, it would be yeah it's so unlike anything that trek had introduced at that point aesthetically or mm-hmm. any anything mhm i and i think one of my favorite things too about that is like how
1: often they just sort of like call their shots with the borg where at the end of that Q who they, you know, uh, a Q sends them back to like regular Federation space. And they are like, how long would it take the Borg to get to us? And they're like roughly two and a half years going at their full speed. And literally two and a half years later, like we're at best of both worlds part one, Um, which is like, so I love that. I, I just
3: think that that's really cool. And best of both worlds, you know, I mean, part one is kind of like who shot Mr. Burns. Like part one is like this, perfect example of like oh my god like the show at an all-time high and then yeah very few people think that part two kind of lives up to part one but Mm -hmm. i i think taken as a whole it's as well as a great borg story it's a great enterprise story yeah you have Riker who is having this kind of quarter life crisis where he's being lapped by this hot shot upcoming you know ensign or junior commander and he's like oh my god am i gonna like not I don't want to leave the Enterprise. I love the Enterprise, but everyone's saying the next step in my career is being a captain on another ship. Mm-hmm. And it becomes about a story about how loyal this crew is to each other and what mm-hmm. they would... almost is like their mini version of a search for Spock where they become a family.
1: Right, 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 right. That's very true. Okay. Yeah. Interesting.
3: Yeah. Um, but yeah,
1: that that cliffhanger, I think, is one of the... Like one of television's greatest cliffhangers, um, of of <laughs> the captain of the Enterprise being turned into a Borg named lacutus and Riker telling the Enterprise to fire on the Borg ship. <laughs> it is. I mean, that is that's the cliffhanger. It's just like fire cut to credits and you're like oh my god <laughs> um it's it's uh there's another one next week right there's another one next week right <laughs> yeah <laughs> three months from now you're gonna have to wait three no! months. yeah so good um and uh yeah can't uh can't recommend watching that enough it's sort of like it's sort of like uh, you know I, I I wouldn't say I I don't even know what what original series episode you could even really compare to it because I don't know that there is one um but uh You know, it's it's really good. Whereas like yesterday's Enterprise, you could be like, yeah, I mean, that's sort of their uh, city on the edge of uh, forever, you know, sort of Um, similar vibes. Um, But uh, this one is just like this. This is sort of the prototypical next gen episode in terms of like you can't even compare it to an original series episode. It's just a next gen thing.
2: I mean, Best of Both Worlds is also, like, not to harp on the series for too long, but it's where the next generation stopped being or stopped trying to be the original series. Yeah. It's where it finally found its own identity as a, a series as well. And then it felt totally different from season,
3: you know, four onward. Right, right. Um, And likewise, First Contact is free from the nostalgia pandering of generations. It right. just relies on this crew and... That's really what I took away from this particular viewing. I hadn't seen this movie in well over a decade easily. And I'm reminded of just like, wow, I really felt like I got a real sense of this crew even without ever, ever watching the show. Because I think Data, Deanna Troy, Dr. Crusher, Riker, Geordi, mm-hmm. uh, they're all in such fine form and it's effortless. Yeah, they're, It's just all their chemistry at this point.
2: It's funny to me too how um, the crew is so much less formal in this movie. Like they're you like the conscious decision of we're not in our uniforms. We're like in flak jackets and jeans for be- the better part of this movie. Immediately makes everyone feel like they're much more like family, like friends, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. To the point where Deanna Troy's accent completely disappears.
1: Oh right. yeah, so
2: right.
0: That's true. <laughs>
2: <laughs> um, I also wanted to uh, ooh, voice crack. I also wanted to say, um, you said something interesting about the Enterprise being a character. This is the first time we see the Enterprise E mm-hmm. ever, and I mean, you had seven years plus a movie with Enterprise D to fall in love with that ship. They make you fall in love with this ship in one movie because you get to see so much of it. It's under such like they really did a great job of making the ship a character, a new ship that no one knew about made it special in this movie.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Um absolutely. And it was uh it it was a fun way to build the ship too because obviously they had to build it both as a regular ship but also as a Borg infested ship, a Borgified ship. And so every panel was removable. So that they would have a Borgified panel and then a non-Borgified panel. And oh, so that's so cool. And so, like, every time they would, they would go to a, a Borgified scene, they would just switch the panels out overnight. It would only take them, like, a few minutes. And so, like, yeah, they just – they were able to do this because, you know, they, they, they built it with the story that they were telling, like, as part of, like, the construction process. That's uh, brilliant. Yeah. Really, really cool stuff. The engineering room, in particular, they actually built with the Borgified version in mind because they're like, it has to look cool because that's where like the base of operations for the Borg infestation is. And then they worked backwards from the Borgified version yeah. into like this what is the, the, what the OG the the original version of it looks like. This is the secret
2: volcano layer. Yes, absolutely, absolutely.
1: Yeah. Um. So so. Uh, more More and and Braga, um, you know, they were they were into the Borg. Uh, Berman was into time travel. They decided, like, what if we combined these ideas? Um, And the first idea that they had was that um, the the Borg would would travel back to um, the Renaissance uh, and uh, uh, start taking over people back then. Um, as far back as the renaissance and there would be sword fights and people in tights and all kinds of crazy stuff and they have to they have to save um european culture uh from from being and and, and then uh, eventually earth from like you know uh the borg taking over uh the planet it was going to be called star trek renaissance um and they, that
2: sounds like an episode from season 2.
1: Yeah. So they they took this idea to Picard and or to to Patrick Stewart and Patrick Stewart was like absolutely not. I'm not wearing tights ever again. So it's not happening. Um just just don't do that. And and Paramount More wasn't bomb. into it. Yeah. Well, Paramount wasn't into it too because they were like one, that sounds expensive, and two it's just sounds cheesy. Like it sounds cheesy and not like it's- like, you know, not what you would want from like the first time you see the Borg in a feature film.
2: <laughs> Guys, I I hate to say it, it's it's a little bit bad. It's just a little bit bad. Yeah, you got to do it again. Yeah.
1: So, they started rethinking, and they were like, "Well, do we do a Voyage Home? And we do Modern Times? Do we do like how 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 should we?" How should we tackle uh, this this time travel thing? And they get the weird idea and they're like, it is a weird idea. It's not something that you see a lot, which is we're time traveling back from their perspective. But from our perspective, it's still the future.
2: Brilliant move.
1: Yeah. So it's it's they're like, let's go back and visit the birth of Star Trek. Um, and and the basically the Star Trek nativity scene. That's how they kept describing the scene of first contact. It is Star Trek as a series, like nativity scene. The Vulcan, Vulcans are the wise men, and, and like that's awesome. that's sort of what how they wanted to treat this. Um, Listen,
2: we have to name check the movie in the movie while we're at it. You're like travelers on some sort of Star Trek. It's, Wink.
1: It's the best. They actually talked about how controversial that line was and how. They like slipped it in and it it got past all of it, and then at the at the very last minute in the edit, they were like, "Do we cut this? Should this be here?" <laughs> <laughs> and they're like, it's "I fine. think normal people will like it. I think it'll it yeah. might annoy Star Trek fans, but I think regular people will like it a lot, so they like and it it's
3: end. genuine defense. I think it's a fun way to just remind everyone and just kind of recontextualize, hey, like that's why we call it this by the way." Yeah,
2: yeah. It's it's that thing where you hear a phrase so many times that it stops actually having meaning as words. Star Trek is just it is it is it is a a, a noun, right? Star Trek is a noun. Yeah. You don't actually think of a trek as like a journey. You have like no one thinks. Oh, that's right. It is like a like a a voyage. That's what
1: it is. That's true. Okay. Um. So, once they decided that what was at stake was going to be Star Trek itself. Which makes a lot of sense considering this was coming out for the 30th anniversary of Star Trek. Um, and they, they then started f- trying to figure out, like, okay, first contact story, the birth of the Federation, uh, and Starfleet, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. So we need to go to Zafran Cochrane. Now the problem with Zafran Cochrane is that he had been previously introduced in Star Trek. He was played by a younger guy and a very respectable guy. Um, in Star Trek, the original series. And uh, they decided to just, like, um, ignore that. Like, just let it go. <laughs> so, curiously,
2: wasn't the – and I might be wrong on this because it's been a while. Wasn't the version of Zephram Cochran that we saw in the original series not actually Zephram Cochran, but some sort of, like – I. Th- Recreation of Zephyr from Cochran.
1: I believe they've like retconned it that way. I don't think that that was the case in the episode itself.
2: Okay, gotcha. I, I, I think remember, they later really.
1: retconned it to make this make sense. Um, yeah, but their but their thought process was Zefram Cochran. <laughs> worked on me. <laughs> yeah, there's their thought process was Zefram Cochran is like in the 90s. This thing was starting to happen where people. You know, we were we were uh at this point in 1995. I guess when they were developing this, um, we were four years, three three or four years into a Clinton administration, and people were starting to look back at history and being like, "Wait, were those guys assholes? Like, was George Washington bad? Was Thomas Thomas Jefferson bad? He had slaves. Was he bad? Was?" Like, and like, there was started to be Christopher Columbus. He wasn't a good guy, right? Like, he wasn't a hero. This was all starting to churn in the 90s, and people were starting to become more critical of these historical figures. Um, And they were like, what if we did that with Zephyrin Cochran? What if. Zephyrin Cochrane Cochran is treated in in the Federation and in the future as this man with this vision. But what if you went back and you met him and he was like a drunkard and an asshole and doing everything for the wrong reasons um, and just accidentally created, <laughs> you know, this amazing utopian future? <laughs> um, and uh, and they're like, that's that's a really cool idea. So the first draft of Star Trek First Contact um, That they write. The concept is that Riker stays on the ship and deals with the Borg while Picard goes down to the planet. Zephyr and Cochran, I believe, is killed in this draft. And Picard has to replace him in the first mission and in the first contact scenario. Um, And uh, meet the Vulcans for the first time. Fly the ship you know warp one or whatever um and and the whole thing and he falls in love with the girl named lily um who is a photographer who he was like a fan of like i guess like in his office um in his in his captain's quarters there would be a lot of photography around of like historical photography of this time period and he's like yeah this is one of my favorite photographers whatever and then goes down and he's like oh my god like i love your photography you're amazing and she's like no one's ever seen my photography and he's like right uh, and so it was like a very like back to the future kind of thing but with the added thing of like she, he actually they actually end up in a romantic relationship um, and uh, that was the original version of this and they bring the script to to, to Patrick Stewart and once again Patrick Stewart reads it and it's like why does Riker get to fight the Borg I want to fight the Borg <laughs>
2: I have all this pent up trauma with the Borg I never dealt with. Yeah, I got like
1: three episodes of
2: dealing with PTSD, and then it was all of a sudden fine. Yeah, and this one's like, for all oh, the I crap
3: guess... you did to the captain. Huh.
1: <laughs> yeah, <laughs> and, and and I get, and they were like, oh, I guess that's true. And then upon switching them, switching Riker and Picard. They realize like, oh, Picard's story is so much more emotionally satisfying now. And the Riker story is great because he's not the captain. We don't feel obligated to make him the captain of Zephyr Cochrane's ship. So now he can just be Zephyr Cochran's number one and assist Zephyr Cochran in becoming what he's supposed to become and do what he's supposed to do.
2: And Frakes just gets to be comic relief for the whole damn movie. Yeah.
3: Absolutely, he is you remember out just...
2: of fire phasers, don't you?
3: <laughs> he is just vibing on camera this entire movie.
2: Oh my god, he's so smiley this
3: whole movie. <laughs> oh yeah, he's having a blast.
2: <laughs> oh, it's so good. Um, I'm amazed they didn't put a trombone in his hand in this film. <laughs> <laughs> like it's true.
3: Like uh, yeah, when then like at the bar when they're all partying.
2: Yeah. <laughs> f- hey guys, watch this.
1: <laughs> so the final change. That- <laughs> Wait, <laughs> I'm
2: sorry, I was going to say this is the coolest that I've ever seen Riker aside from on lower decks that was just my thought. Oh yeah,
1: absolutely. Well, <laughs> he's a captain on that, so, you know. Correct. Um so uh the the last change that happened at this point was um basically Berman, Rick Berman reads the script and he's like the Borg aren't working as a movie villain. Um, you know, they're faceless and and essentially voiceless. I mean, you know, you have them talking to Data as like a hive mind, but like they're not sharing a scene together. You're not going to give, you're not going to give him anything to act off of. He's just like talking into a void that's talking back to him. Um, like he need, they need to share a scene with somebody, and uh, that's how the Boar Queen was created. Um, as basically a character for the other characters to bounce off of. They retcon her into being part of Best of Both Worlds. The thing that I find interesting, though, about the Boar Queen, and I love the Borg Queen, let me state that. However, I know that she's a controversial character because it does open up, this weird hole in Best of Both Worlds where the whole point of them creating Locutus was to be the face of the Borg, but they already have the Borg Queen, so why do they need lacutus because they can't
2: afford to expose the Borg Queen, because if someone knew there was a Borg Queen, they could destroy the Borg Queen.
1: Yeah,
3: that's true.
2: That's Locutus true. Locutus could be expendable.
3: That's
1: very true.
2: Yeah. Th- there you go. I answered your question. That's the- no well, the that's- that's <laughs> no prize to Toffee.
3: That's good enough for me. For, I, as someone who watched Q Who, you know, like the day before. I that was actually, yeah, it was like where my brand went to like, oh yeah, because like no one knows about her, not even Jean-Luc. So maybe it's like a secret that they keep like deep in their innards. You know? Right. But then also it yeah. is it is such a great storytelling solution yeah. of like Absolutely. Yeah, you need a face. Absolutely.
2: And and that the stuff they came up with, the innovations in the Star Trek lore for this movie, the 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 Borg and all that stuff, have such a ripple effect in every iteration of Star Trek from here on out. Yep. Like the, the importance of these creative decisions that you're describing cannot be understated for this franchise. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Absolutely. Um so now they have a script, it's time to get a director. So they had gone to a TV direct, to, to one of the next-gen uh, TV directors to direct Generations. They decided, for this time around, this script rules, right? So we, we should get, like, a big-time director. And so they met with Ridley Scott, uh, and they met with John McTiernan, and they met with another unnamed third director who was very big at the time, they won't say who it was, but that person met with uh, Patrick Stewart, and and basically all three directors. Ridley Scott just passed because he was like, "I'm not making Star Trek Eight, fuck off." Um, and then and John <laughs> making McTiernan, Aliens Nine, yeah, and 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 John McTiernan was like, "Ah, no, like I'm I'm good." Um, and that third uh, director was interested and was going to do it, but when he met with Patrick Stewart, Patrick Stewart was like so how much of our Star Trek did you watch? And he's like, oh, I haven't watched any of it. And, and he's like, have you watched any Star Trek? And he was like, no, I've never seen Star Trek. And Patrick Stewart's like, how do you expect to make a Star Trek movie? If you've never watched, you don't even know what Star Trek is. Like, how can you like, it's so specific. Patrick Stewart was like such a champion for what Star Trek is and felt like he knew it in his bones. And he was like, I'm afraid of a director coming in who just wants to make a cool movie and isn't interested in in what star trek is. And now on on one side of that, it's like yeah, that's 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 very true. And that's you know, g- good on Patrick Stewart for like championing this this franchise and 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 you know, star trek in general, but like also on the flip side of that, you had Nicholas Meyer direct Wrath of Khan, who
3: also knew nothing about star trek and made a killer movies so at the time he didn't know anything about Star Trek but by the writing process he he like mainlined it right that's true that is true
1: Um, but yeah with this one you know I don't know who this was but apparently he was like a really big director at the time if I had to guess my guess is it's Roland Emmerich that's my guess is that it was Roland Emmerich because Roland Emmerich also had Independence Day come out this year Michael Bay I would hope it wasn't Michael <laughs> Bay um, that feels like such a that feels crazy um, but but I, I my guess is that it's Roland Emmerich um, because he did have Independence Day come out the same year also starring Brent Spiner Brent Spiner hell of a year this year good year 1996 for yes. um, but, I'm gonna say uh, Jan Jan DeBont. Mm. That's not a bad choice either. That's not a bad that's not a bad one. Um, I think either one of them might have been might have been the pick because they were, you know, at that at that level where they would have been like, you know, ha- they would have been having meetings for movies like this. Um so so uh Patrick Stewart nixes that director, whoever it may have been. Um, and they're like, okay, uh, like what what do we do now? <laughs> and Jonathan Frakes was like, I mean, I don't want to overstep but like
2: let me put down my trombone yeah guys. but I
1: would I would I would do it like I would I would direct this uh, this is a great script I love this I love all of these things about it I think I, I I, think I could do this I think I could do something really special with this and hey Jonathan have you done a movie before he had not
3: um, Had he had nope. he directed episodes of next-gen yeah he had directed yeah. episodes of
1: next-gen DS9 and Voyager in fact Star Trek was like at its apex At this point in popular culture, you had the next gen movies, you had DS9 on television, you had Voyager on, you had DS9 in syndication, syndicated television, you had Voyager in primetime television on UPN. Um, First time that that Star Trek had been in primetime television since the original series. So Mm -hmm. it was like apex of Star Trek. Um, and, And Jonathan Frakes had had his fingers in all of it at this point. And, uh, and they were like, like, you know, they went to Patrick Stewart and they're like, are you like cool with him directing this? And he was like, hell yeah. (laughs) Like he was, he was like fully on board (laughs) because, because a, he's like, uh, he knows all of us backwards and forwards. It's going to be like, none of us are even at work. That's how it was when we were filming those episodes with him. And, you know, he's going to be more open to like my suggestions and things because, He's not going to like have a strict vision for this movie in the way that like somebody like a Ridley Scott would have. Um, so he's like fully on board for Jonathan Frakes to come in and, and make his directorial debut on this. Here's the problem. Frakes, who had only ever directed TV in the 90s, had no idea how to direct anything in widescreen so so everything was like he he was like i only know how to direct thing in four in four three aspect ratio like i don't know how to frame anything in in widescreen and so he and uh their their chosen um director of photography uh matthew leonetti they basically like got together and they just screened all of the best like widescreen movies that they could find like Lawrence of Arabia, 2001, A Space Odyssey, The Shining, uh, like just anything that he like Alien, the first Alien, like whatever he could get his hands on that was like known for having an like an incredible eye for the frame. He just mainlined all of these movies and took notes and drew pictures and like did all of these things to sort of like figure out what a movie is supposed to look like. And I got to say there are so many shots in this movie that I am endlessly impressed by. Where I'm like, "Holy shit, man." Like that scene where 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 Picard is looking in looking out the window and then like Riker steps in while the opera's playing and he steps into the reflection. I'm like, "Man, that is a that is a guy who's like done his homework <laughs> in terms of how there to, are some, how to make a frame."
2: Some really beautiful shots in this movie that I I again, I think it's why it doesn't feel dated is because he just the way that he set up shots or angles or anything like that he didn't do anything that was revolutionary, mm-hmm. but he did things that were beautiful absolutely and and you know at the same time, some really simple shots that looked great, all the stuff in Montana looked great, and it's all just like really simple shooting yep
3: and it it's I think the difference between you know a Ridley Scott or you know a Michael Bay is the the ego. That sometimes these big autierish filmmakers can have of like now all of a sudden it's like, how do I make this a Ridley Scott Star Trek movie? You know, right. yeah. I'm gonna put my stamp He's... on this old dumb thing.
2: It's like Hulk Hogan. He's like, I gotta fit the leg drop in somewhere. Right. Where do I put it? Whereas like mm-hmm.
3: you have Jonathan Frakes who came from the very, you know, I didn't say this admirably, but the 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 serviceman like direction of television, which is like Okay, let's do this. Where's the camera? We got it. We had to hit, hit this mark and to tell this story. He's coming from right. a place of I just love this script and want to. How do I bring it to life yeah. in the best way possible?
2: Right. There's the the shot, the one shot that I swear to God was test footage, and they just loved it so much it made it into the movie of the Borg coming out of the shadows like eight in a row with their laser beams mm. flicking. I like they. I f- I swear they filmed that shot just for the trailer, and then they were like. <laughs> Shit
1: that's super cool. We got to keep that. Yeah, I know. <laughs> it seems like it. It
2: has no context in the movie. It's not like there's no set behind them. It's literally just Borg walking out of the black and it's such a cool shot yeah. with the laser thingies. Yeah.
1: Um speaking of a lack of context, uh just to talk about um a couple of just a couple of last minute things before we get into to the rest of the movie, um Guinan. Not yeah. in this movie, yeah. Uh, um, not in this movie. And for those of you who have watched Next Gen, uh, and we talked about it briefly in Generations, Guinan's entire origin of as a character is based on the Borg. She is the one person on the ship prior to Q who who knew what the Borg was. She had been fleeing the Borg. Um, you know, she comes from a sort of mysterious. Uh, uh, alien species that was, uh, basically wrecked by a Borg invasion, um, and, and, you know, fell into the the open arms of the Federation, uh, becoming a bartender. <laughs> and, and, uh, uh, when Whoopi found out, Whoopi Goldberg found out that this movie was going to be about the Borg, and she's like, oh man, I can't wait to find out what juicy stuff they write for Guinan in this movie. Um, and, the phone, she just kept waiting for the phone to ring. It never did. And apparently, you know, they've talked about this. Um, and and Berman, uh, Braga, and more have all talked about Guinan. They hated writing Guinan. Um, they always have. Guinan was a creation of Roddenberry. And they just, they never understood her. And they always felt like they were writing they had to like write her in a way that like she could never make them they she could never say what she meant she always had to say things in a backwards mysterious way to make the other characters realize something um and they were just they hated writing her and they hated writing that stuff uh and they decided that like destroying the d the 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 d destroying the d um, yeah, and, and, uh, have now having the Enterprise E, they're like, maybe there's not a 10 forward and maybe Guinan is somewhere else. And, and is it, I mean, Worf's not on the ship anymore. Worf's on DS nine. So maybe Guinan went somewhere else and isn't on the enterprise anymore. And there, we don't have to deal with her. And so that's what happened there is like, they just hated writing the character. Uh, they found it a chore. They, they never look forward to writing Guinan scenes. And um, yeah, they found the first opportunity they could to get rid of her. Uh, and it's, and it's sad because Nick, you just
3: watched those episodes. You know how integral Guinan is to the Borg now. Um, Int- integral, they- not just plot wise, but would be Goldberg as Guinan delivers beautiful moments with Picard where she is able mm-hmm. to meet with him and being like, I know I've lost everything to these people, like to this race. Like I, you know, and it's, yeah, I she's such a great part of all three of those that it's like I'm it it it's kind of like what we talked about with generations where Ronald that really cringy commentary where Ronald yeah. D Moore was like yeah Diane Troy's kind of a dumb character why would they care about mental health and outer space and the future it's like this he's really I don't want to say boneheaded because I think these are talented writers but it's just yeah it's like really like you couldn't find so you were like intimidated by this character and so you're just like well it's just like. I, I understand, but I completely disagree. Yeah.
2: I guess I never thought of it, and I love Guinan too. Uh, but thinking on it now, I can almost see where in Best of Both Worlds, nobody had knowledge of the Borg. Uh, Guinan is the character that's bringing knowledge, but in this movie, that role is filled by Picard. Mm-hmm. Like, who is the one who knows the Borg? It's Picard. Um, I think in this story they're trying to tell, the character might not work or have enough, you know, necessity to be there, I think it would have had to have been a different Borg story altogether. I don't mm. think you could fit Guinan in this film and give the character the the time she deserves. She'd almost have to be like the Lily character or something like that, right. like yeah. with Picard for the whole story. Um which could have been cool, I guess. Um but then Lily also serves the purpose of being the audience right. who might not know Star Trek and is a vehicle for a lot of exposition. And right. if it's Guinan, you don't do that. Right. Um, so that's a, that's a tough pickle. That's a really tough one. I never really, I guess I didn't miss Guinan in this one. Um, but now I do. Right. Well, <laughs> I, and I,
3: I think you don't miss her because this is such a tight movie. And yeah, yeah. And I think yeah. you're right. Having Guinan, cause Guinan takes up space because she's such a, you know she had, yeah she has all that history with the borg and yeah that would demand time and space and it's like well what yeah. what is what is her what what does she bring to the story about vengeance and
2: yeah and and she's always been picard's conscience and again in this one that that ends up being lily like it's it's taken up by another character who also serves other purposes so like it's it because it's such a tight film there's just there's not a lot of room for frivolity the fact that they fit barkley in was just melted my fanboy little heart but there's not room for a lot of that stuff you know yeah
1: and and uh, you know I guess it should be noted that you know the best of both worlds all those scenes that that you're referring to uh Nick of of Guinan these like beautiful scenes of with with Guinan um you know that story was written by uh Michael Piller the the uh showrunner at the time Ah. and you know uh, michael pillar didn't write this movie <laughs> and and didn't <laughs> write didn't and, and but did write best of both worlds they did not write best of both worlds um uh and so braga and more and so yeah i guess maybe he was just better at writing guidance scenes than they were you know I and mean, maybe it was that simple yeah. um but uh uh yeah and then the last bit of a uh, bit i want to talk about speaking of 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 lily um, and, uh, uh Alfre Woodard, who, uh, absolutely rules in this movie. I think at the time I would have known her from heart and souls, the, uh, uh yeah. the, the Robert Downey jr, uh, invisible friend, but actually turns out they're all ghosts movie, um, which I watched kind of recently and, and surprisingly holds up, but I used to watch that all the time as a kid and she's one of the ghosts and, uh, I loved her. I think she was my favorite ghost. Um, and, and so seeing her here, I was like, oh my gosh, it's the ghost from Heart and Souls. <laughs> um, but she's great in this. Uh, Alfre Woodard and Jonathan Frakes both, when, when Frakes first came to LA, one of the first people that he met was Alfrey Woodard. Um, and they were both trying to make it, you know, at, at the same time. And Alfrey Woodard had been out there quite a bit longer than him, um, and was about to sort of break through. I think she had been in a few things, but not too much. And I guess like they just sort of became drinking buddies and at one point um she was like uh they were talking about you know godfathers and godmothers and things like that and he was like you know I never had a godmother and she she said you do now I'm your godmother and so he That's ref- not how that works he refers to her as his <laughs> godmother all the time and uh and and when this movie came up and and the role of Lily was was out, he was like, I that's the only person I want to play this part and uh got Aww. his old godmother, Al Alfre Woodard, to come and play that play that part. Um and I, I Alfre Woodard talks about this role a lot. It's one of her favorite roles she's ever played, uh, because she says it is the role that is the closest to herself. Um this is like this is like her. This is, she was like, I was barely acting in this one. Um, and, and that made it a lot of fun. It just, I got to like hang out, see some weird robots, you know, like, you know, it's just, uh, it was a fun time. It's all you ever want in yeah. Hollywood. Yeah. And uh, Cromwell, I think, was only a year out from Babe, right? That iconic performance.
2: That was what, 94? Ni- 94, 95, I think. Yeah.
1: Yeah. So this was, this was a big time for Cromwell too.
2: And he stuck with this. He's played Zephram Cochran like Cochran, like three or four times at this point, I think. Like in, Whether in TV episodes? In the TV stuff. Yeah. Like he'll drop in and do – I know he did at least once for Enterprise. And then I think he did – I don't know. Maybe he'd have done a couple on Enterprise. He's he's done it a few times where he's been either in like the background of a shot or like a video feed footage of Cromwell – or of Cochran giving a speech ten years later, blah, blah, blah.
1: Yeah. Prior to this, he had actually done a bunch of Star Trek, not as Cochrane. Mm-hmm. Just as like right. various other roles. But
2: he's there was one episode where he was like the leader of a was it him? It was like the leader of a group of religious something, yeah, something like a crew that of people right. that came on board the Enterprise, refugees or something. And I think he was like their like their spokesperson. I think that was the role he was in. One of the roles he was in. Yeah, maybe as an alien with like weird nostrils. Right, right, right. Maybe I'm mixing stuff up. Anyway, yes, but yeah, he's he's one of those like guys that shows up in different makeups all the time in Star Trek. Mm-hmm. And now he can't anymore,
1: right? Because he's <laughs>
2: like I'm pretty sure in the holodeck scene in this movie, we get um, Neelix. The dude yep. that plays Neelix is like the the bouncer, but I don't think he's credited at all.
1: No, no, no. There are there are multiple cameos from yeah. the other Star Trek series because we also get obviously the the hologram uh, doctor. Oh, Picardo, yeah. yeah. Um, and uh, I guess the only DS9 reference we get is is Worf and and the Defiant.
3: Um, yeah. But uh, anyway. Anyway, let's get into the movie, Nick.
0: Yay. <laughs> well,
3: uh first thing I noticed on this rewatch was uh the return of Jerry Goldsmith's music. Yeah, hell yeah.
2: Such a good soundtrack. Yes. Yes. You
3: you even get some motifs that he did back in the old movies and Yeah. Um like I I you know, and I can't, I can't like recall, I can't mimic it now, but also uh much much later when they're doing their zero g walk in outer space the score is straight up like vidger music.
1: Yeah, well, and he <laughs> he uh, he brings his Klingon theme back for Worf, but makes it a hero theme in this movie yes. versus a villain theme. And I just think that that's the funniest thing. Like he didn't he. I don't I don't even know if he changed a note of it, but it's just like because it's Worf, it suddenly becomes a heroic theme.
2: <laughs> yeah, that's right. context.
3: So we get some cool. Uh, re shot uh, Borg stuff where we get uh, Jean Luc's nightmares of being in captivity, having his humanity stricken away. We get our first shot that's ingrained in my memory of a nail slowly going toward Jean Luc's eye. Oh, yeah. How did they do that? It's such a good it touches his eye and like pushes
1: it in, like you can see it like pushing on his cornea. Mm-hmm. Yeah. My oh, my my, my guess is the cornea is CGI and so is the nail.
2: Mm. Oh, that's... It... I think somebody got an eye poked. They didn't do it the
3: Mission Impossible Two way just... where they just like had a knife tied to a cable. Whoa.
2: Yeah, yeah, yeah. the be- like the beginning of this movie is so chilling, mm-hmm. so chilling. Mm-hmm. I love it. And to to say what you had did about the um the music, this is the the introduction of the Borg music cue that bomb 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 bomb. That yeah. now shows up every other time the Borg show up. It never. It wasn't in a TV show at all. Oh. it was the creation of this film. Yeah,
3: I, that's really cool. And I th- yeah, I, I haven't. That's cool that it kept going after. Kind of going back to what you said of this being such like a nexus, if you yeah.
2: will. Uh, you you hear it in Picard with this season, this last season of Picard that came out. Um, that theme is alluded to all over the place. Right.
1: Mm-hmm. And speaking of the it, speaking of the Borg, I just want to mention. Um, so there are you might be surprised to learn. There are 8 borg in this movie. Yes, 8. Uh there are 8 actors. Michael Westmore, the uh ma- the head makeup guy who would go on to become um one of the sort of like uh, ongoing, like guests on on um, Face Off, the the the, the sci fi show that that Nick is only familiar with because uh, I bet my wife and I mainlined that show uh, during the pandemic. <laughs> yeah. Um, but uh, uh, Michael Westmore, um, you know, he there there was Eight Borg, and basically he would like. Have like bits and bobs that he would be able to just like take off and like combine in different ways and move around on them so that eight people could look like an endless amount like an army of Borg with all different you know accoutrements and things like that, um, and then all of these Borg costumes and and makeup effects would then be transferred over to all of the Borg appearances on Voyager and so the Borg would go from looking like the pasty Borg that are in Next Gen, pasty white Borg, to looking much closer to the sort of zombified movie Borg in Voyager.
2: And credit for coming up with the idea of the bald Borg, because the bald Borg is way creepier than rugby helmet Borg that we get in the TV show. Yes. So, kudos.
1: 100%.
3: And just classic, classic Trek movie ingenuity of Mm – Telling a big epic story and finding like you know, the you know, clever ways of like tricking the audience and like saving on yeah. resources.
2: Yeah, let's be efficient. Absolutely.
3: Mm-hmm. I'm. Uh, we we find out that the Borg have uh, begun their trek, their journey to Earth, and mm-hmm. Starfleet is gathering its forces to try and stop it. Like a kind of classic Trek, where huge, epic sounding stuff happening off screen. Yeah, mm-hmm. And as a kid it worked for me Being like oh shit there's like a war And all these ships are converging This is crazy <laughs> this was, Is this what Star Trek is like all the time? Yeah And we learn from the Admiral Or you know Picard learns from the Admiral That he will not be joining Starfleet Because he sees Picard's time in captivity And brief assimilation with the Borg As a liability He's emotionally compromised Right and so right. the Enterprise is sent to uh patrol the neutral zone, as uh as Riker says, like, you know, ch- chasing comets. Uh
2: Is there is there any other assignment that would have sounded as neutered as, hey, we need you to patrol the neutral zone? Like, <laughs> yeah. they just like what is the most boring thing? that the audience could hear. Whether you know what the neutral zone is or not, what's the most boring thing they could hear uh-huh. to make them get, like, oh, this is not what he wants to be doing. Yeah.
1: Mm. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely.
2: And
3: the crew sells it with their reaction. of Even Picard's like, is that a course for the neutral zone? You know? You can hear yeah. the contempt. <laughs> I guess that's a, I guess that's shit detail in Star Trek. We <laughs> also get our Symbol first look
1: at Geordi's at ocular implants. Yes. Um, which was a long time like, uh, uh, desire, um, uh, for, from him because, you know, he's like, I, I, I have this visor on my face, this sort of like headband thing on my face and you never see my eyes. And like, as an actor, you're taking everything out of me. Like I, I have to like give these big reactions where like I raise my eyebrows extremely high so that you can see them from behind the visor, but that's like literally all I can do.
2: LeVar Burton once acted so hard he grew an entire goatee for a few episodes (laughs) to make up for the lack of seeing his eyes. So do you
3: have any do you have any uh, quotes from him or anything if the contact lenses were less comfortable or more comfortable than the visor? Uh, No, he was like he was
1: on cloud nine making this movie, not behind a visor. Um, He was like he was like really, really happy to be doing this because, like, you know, this is now the 90s. So it's like. The contact lenses, like contact lens technology was, you know, we didn't quite have disposable contacts yet, but like they were comfy. They Mm -hmm. weren't they weren't uncomfortable. They weren't hard lenses anymore. So,
3: you know, what's interesting is like I remember watching this movie and seeing things like Worf not being on the Enterprise or Geordi not having his visor anymore. And I assumed that, oh, this is all stuff that's explained in the shows. And now knowing that these are like well after the shows are over. And it's yeah. just like, oh, cool! Like, like, like I, but I, I, I buy it because life goes on, people move, technology advances, and it's these nice little unremarked upon changes.
1: Well, and with with Worf, what I what I love about that is like they had to have Worf in this movie because how could you not have Worf in the next gen movie? But you know, Michael Dorn and Worf had moved <laughs> on to DS Nine, so they had to like figure out like, well, how do we get Worf back on the ship? And and their conclusion was like. Well, if the Defiant gets called in to this to this fight, then he could be like captaining the Defiant, and then you know would get would get on there. But like, I just I found that I I just find that so so fun and interesting. Not they had to... not nearly as
2: entertaining as what is it? Two movies later, when they're like, "Worf, how are you here?" and he starts to explain it, and the camera just pans away. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> can't wait. She's like, "Yeah, we get it. You need to be here. You're under contract. Yeah. It's fine." Yeah.
3: So, uh we get. The the uh, the fleet engages the Borg. It's a shit show immediately. The admiral ship is destroyed, and Picard takes it upon himself to, like, at the behest of the crew, like, "Hey, we have to do this. We're going to delay our orders." And to the uh, Data speaks for the rest of the crew by saying, "To hell with our orders," mm-hmm. which and- everyone
1: it loves. They're all smiling about.
3: <laughs> everyone gets a little <laughs> reaction shot. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> uh film data
2: is way snarkier way sassier even without an emotion chip than television data and i am i'm am a big fan
3: yeah it's like they save all of the sass we're like oh you know this would be a real treat because we never get this in the show but for someone like right. me who only sees the movies i'm just like oh cool this is how data is all the time <laughs> data
2: rules and then you watch season one you're like mm. like oh that was yeah. payoff
3: that was like finally yeah. he doesn't <laughs> suck Right. <laughs> I
2: can't wait to see what they do with Wesley.
3: Uh, we uh, so we get this cool like yeah the, at the time I just thought this was so cool of seeing all these Starfleet ships converging and fighting this one Borg cube. Uh, I think it's really funny that the captain that, that the ship that Worf is captaining, everyone is just dead.
1: Yeah, uh, him just him <laughs> and Adam
3: Scott are left. Um, the last two men standing. Yeah,
1: I so I have a question about about warf's place on the enterprise because who has replaced him on on the ship is it is it uh is it what's his name um hawk yeah hawk is it hawk is he no hawk would have been at ops yeah. which is
2: like your your ops and helm control there wasn't anybody stationed at tactical when warf walked in yeah um Hmm. So I would assume it was just random crew member who we never met, Ensign Lynch, maybe. Who knows? Yeah. Right. Yeah. Um, we never actually see him relieving. Like on the show, you'd see people being relieved of their post all the time, um, when shift changes would occur. But you didn't actually get to see that. Like Crusher just brings him in. It's like, oh, I have a patient who wouldn't stay in the hospital here. I I and uh, he. They're like, we need help at Tactical.
1: Yeah. And
2: there he goes. I
1: got to be honest. I feel like this could have been a really interesting place for Wesley to be, Um, you know, like to bring back Wesley and have him either be at Tactical or replace Hawk with Wesley um, and actually have Wesley get assimilated um, and have, like, Crusher have to deal with her son being... A Borg, like being part of the Borg, yeah. would have been something really interesting for Crusher to have to deal with, especially after losing her husband. So, I don't know. There's, there's. I mean, the question I have at that point
2: is did the, at this point in 1995, was the audience jonesing for Wesley again yet? Like, people want to see him now, but I still think at that point people were kind of like,
3: he was the scrappy dude of Star Trek for a while, right? Yeah. Yeah,
1: I I, I I, understand that. But at the same time, like, seeing Wesley die, I think a lot of them would be really into.
2: <laughs> I think it would have been a really cool thing. I, My brain just says, again, it's a tight movie, and there's only so much that you, you could have squoze in there, you know? Yeah.
1: Um. It's just that Crusher doesn't get a lot to do in these movies, so... I would, True. I would lo- I'm
2: thankful she got her her um, sick bay moment with Picardo though. That was pretty.
3: That was good. Watch, that but... was. I swore I'd never use one of these things. <laughs> <I love> that.
2: <laughs> Very bones moment of her.
3: <laughs> oh, so good. The uh, so warp is beamed aboard the Enterprise. They managed to destroy the cube. Big upgrade in cube explosion technology from 1990.
2: You think they would have removed or at least changed the location of the explode ship button so that uh, people like Picard wouldn't know where it was? Sure, but you know,
3: trust me, Mister. <laughs> trust me. Fire on that! It's the blow up <laughs> button. <laughs>
2: <laughs> All right, don't shoot. It says "Don't shoot this" in big red letters <laughs> on the.
3: <laughs> There's like a Borg sweeping right by the sign. He's like, you know, we really need to change this. <laughs> uh. <laughs> but we see like one sphere survive and the enterprise follows it. And the sphere uses temporal technology to travel back to the year 2063 and begins blindly firing at the village where Lily and Zephyrm Cockram live. Right. Um. Pr- prior to them going through though, uh, they
1: see the earth change in front of them into a Borgified earth uh, yeah. nine million population of nine billion people all Borg uh, uh, I forgot
3: I it, forgot that part because it's really dumb yeah
1: it, it is it is really dumb here's the thing though originally they were going to actually land on earth and then find that it is all Borg because they're going to see They they basically were going to see the sphere disappear and then they were going to like land on earth to be like Take a shuttle or, or transport or whatever. Go to Earth and be like, "Hey, everybody, okay? Like, we survived the Borg attack, isn't that great?" And like, wait, you're all Borg? Oh no! You know, oh, Planet of the Apes. Yeah, and then and then yeah. uh, they're like, "Okay, we have to go back. They must have went back in time, and we have to we have to go and stop them." So that they would have their... like a more like practical like on Earth version, and they just found that it like it like stopped the movie dead in its tracks. And they're like, "Why do we need this like extra 10-minute sequence? We can cut all this out. Just have them say in the exposition quickly and just keep moving."
3: All so, board. yeah. Yeah, all bored. It also would have been very expensive. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> that's very true. But it
2: We would need more than 8 of them. <laughs>
3: but I agree cuz it like that that kind of would have been like a cool Tannerville kind of moment of the the stakes. Mm-hmm. And now it's just this awkward like I, I had to kind of like my brain was like, wait, then what is this a different timeline? Are they going if 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 Lily and Zephyrin were to like travel to America or to other parts of America, would it be Borg? Are we in a different timeline? And well, it, no,
1: They're so they're they're in the process of going back in time. So they are protected by the temporal field and they're seeing modern day t- from their perspective, modern day Earth. Transform between before their eyes into being nine billion Borg before they follow through on the time travel and go back to, and follow the the sphere through. Which means in some alternate
2: timeline post 2063 that it actually went successfully. So there's still parallel timelines out there if you follow Back to the Future rules.
1: That's true. If you follow
3: Back to the Future <laughs> rules. <laughs> yeah. So they travel to April fourth, 2063. They surmise what the Borg's game is and decide the only way to ensure that first contact happens the way that it's supposed to in their history books is to directly intervene. So, a small party arrives to the village. Was tofty do you know was was April 5th
1: 2063 was that invented for this movie that the that first contact day? I I th- Think so because
2: I don't think it's ever solidified. I think the year and the date are never mentioned before. And the other thing that I don't think is—and again, I, I could be wrong—but the World War Three thing was new for this movie. That we had just come out of another world war, governments that the Earth had had this period of like depleted governments, a lot of people dead. You know, the economy, t- all this stuff. Like this the sort of big failing of humanity. At this point in time was a new creation that is also now carried forward in a lot of future Star Trek after this. It's
3: become a vital part of why I find Trek so powerful as a Mm -hmm. story is this pocket of time that we're visiting in this movie. There's uh, a part in uh, Best of Both Worlds where, you know, Picard's been captured. Riker is now in the big chair and they like morale is like at like Helm's Deep level low. Because they're about to engage mm-hmm. the board. And Guinan tells Riker, a man that believes he's going to die tomorrow can easily find a way to. Or something to that effect. Like, yeah. hope, hope is not some fairy dust, ethereal, liberal concept. It's like a tangible thing that you need to survive. Mm-hmm. And the idea that we're living in, like, a humanity's darkest area, we're 10 years after World War Three, like, 600 million dead, or 50 million dead, or some astronomical number that Riker says. And it's, like, it's cool to, like, see that physically of, like, yeah, we're living in villages, we're, like, wearing these big old coats and stuff. And it's a reminder of, like, the stake of Trek, of, like, the necessity of, like, being hopeful in this time where stuff is, like... Um... Hope less.
2: Third drawer yeah. of my white cabinet?
3: Yeah,
1: absolutely. Or here. Um it's uh no, it's great. And and again, you know, just to reemphasize the fact that this is the 30th anniversary, you know, doing a Star Trek movie about the origin of Star Trek for the 30th anniversary is uh pretty cool. Mm-hmm. Um it is just crazy that Presumably, fingers crossed, <laughs> fingers crossed, knock on wood, in our lifetime, we will see, quote unquote, first contact day. We will live to see first contact day. You right.
3: Know? Yeah. And like, and I think going back to like it now in 2023 time of recording or time of like when you're hearing this, it's like cynicism. Like our, our perception of the future has changed so much where mm-hmm. we assume blasély on social media that, you know, why bother? We're fucked. Why are we having kids? The world's going to be a hell planet. And going back to Guinan's words of like a man who believes he's going to die tomorrow will find a way to. Right. The like the idea of even having like there's this part where where Deanna Troy says like we, we, we weren't even we didn't even think this was possible. And this like totally restructures our scope. Yeah. Of like our hopes for ourselves as a species. And I don't know. I yeah. found that really poignant now in in the 21st century yeah another scene that is like ingrained in my memory that kind of has like I still think about this scene whenever I go to a museum or do anything like take any kind of trip Data and Picard on Earth come upon the Phoenix rocket the the vessel that Zefram Cochrane will fly up into uh, outer space and reach warp one and meet the Vulcans and change history and Picard places his hand on the surface of the rocket and Data's like, what are you doing? And he's like, oh yeah, like when humans have a tactile connection with something, it becomes more real. Like I've seen this thing at the Smithsonian dozens of times and I've always wanted to just put my hand on it and it's crazy. And it's this really beautiful, again, as a kid watching these characters for the first time, seeing Picard... Having a really visceral, like emotional response to something, but then also taking time to sort of father data and mm-hmm. walk him through, like, this is why this is happening. I'm like, oh, cool. This is a really kind of father, cool father son like relationship. And then we get the end of Troy being like, do I need to, do you three need to be alone? <laughs> <laughs> is the, is the
2: Picard data? father son thing as strong in the series or does that i feel like that's more a product of the films like they really zeroed in on it in the films
1: I, I i think it's in it is in the series a lot but but it's not um you know the difference between a tv show and a movie it doesn't happen every episode you know and it's, right and so it's just it's spaced out so much more than in a movie where they're like
3: concentrating
1: uh all of the elements there you know it's
3: like uh the difference of ethos you see in television it's like checking in on your friends every week, whereas yeah. a movie you see all the time a movie needs to be the most important days of these characters' lives, right,
1: right, right,
3: um but yeah, I love that scene as well,
1: uh and i I the Deanna Troy like interrupting them uh feels very uh Moffat Doctor Who to me, like <laughs> that comment, yeah, <laughs> it just feels very moffat Doctor Who. Um, did you wish really hard? Um, <laughs> <Sure>. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, yeah, it's it's good. I, I I really like it, and I like it from the perspective of like, I like how this movie treats this not too distant future in this historical context that like feels like visiting NASA and seeing like you know the first space shuttle or or things like that. It it, it has that. Uh, I don't know. I don't know how they manage to, like, give it that emphasis. Um, uh, but they do. They they absolutely nail it. Where This all feels very important, despite having not happened yet.
3: Yeah, it's a way to ground the stakes emotionally of, like, yeah, again, mm-hmm. what you was saying, of, like, even if you... I've never heard of Star Trek before. Maybe you can relate to, like, seeing the, like, Apollo shuttle at the Smithsonian or, yeah. and being able to, like, touch history.
1: Yeah. Yeah. It's cool. Uh, it's a really it's a really great scene, that silo scene. Really so
3: cool. something else and uh we you know, we're heading in we'll be heading into the uh the Abrams era soon in a few weeks. Right. The Kelvin verse. And yeah. one thing I've noticed about the Kelvin verse or I I'm now looking thinking about moments from those movies and watching this is how absolutely wrecked the Enterprise crews get in the Abrams movies. Yeah just <laughs> wholesale slaughtered <laughs> yeah and i was like reminded of that during these you know we get the scene in engineering where two crewmen are like climbing into checking stuff and they both get like slasher movie wreck yeah yeah and as a kid watching star trek i was like oh cool like oh this is a movie this is crazy but now having seen more trek it's it's striking how the the violence is much more striking and like the peril that the crew is directly facing is like, whoa, this is hardcore. Yeah.
2: I also really like the like don't show the shark aspect of that scene mm-hmm. and like the the horror movie angles. Like she pops up through the little gopher hole there and turns her head around and the camera like rushes at her, like mm-hmm. some very cool um directorial choices there. Yeah.
3: Scott, do you remember the scaring you as a kid?
1: Um no, but it, it's definitely um, you know, an aspect of, uh, an aspect of my sort of growth into a horror fan. The Borg is definitely, you know, an early impetus of that. Um, it's also worth noting that you know, I, I, just from uh my uh, a personal Scott Corelli history. This movie opened uh, November twenty second, nineteen ninety six, which would be. Roughly three weeks prior to the release of Scream, which would change my life forever. So, <laughs> this is like, this is like so close to that coming out. So you think you might like horror? Yeah. Uh, try
2: this. Yeah, yeah. yeah that,
3: that's absolutely. really valid, though. Movies being horror gateway drugs for kids. Of yeah. like, maybe you're not ready for horror movies, but you there's these moments where yeah, you get the shark from Jaws or like. Jason Voorhees POV, but mm-hmm. the Borg are also very zombie like. Yes. Mm-hmm. Definitely. And the Borg Queen is glokey kind of uh kind of hellraiser-y, I thought. Kind of, yeah. Yeah, very much so. I I, I um I'm well I'll say well I'll save Borg Queen stuff till we get sure. to her. But, She's coming. But, She's yeah. coming for sure. Yeah. yeah. So the uh the Borg won't stay on deck sixteen. Yeah. As Picard notes. They are. That's so cool. I remember thinking that was so cool as a kid, seeing the layout and almost like a game. You can see the Borg slowly overtaking the ship, deck by deck.
1: Yeah, yeah. It's it, and it, and it's cool because you think that they destroyed the Borg, and you're like, okay, well, story over, <laughs> no problem. We just got to go down, make sure that he's not dead. Uh, and and as long as Zephyr Cochran's not dead, and the ship's not destroyed. Everything's all good, and we can get out of here. And then upon learning that the Borg actually like got onto the Enterprise, they're like, okay, this is going to be more complicated than we thought.
2: That one little moment of shields are down, you know, that they throw away in the, in the warp bubble there, and you're just like, oh, nothing good ever happens when your shields are down. <laughs> yeah. It's very alien. But wait, the, the Star Trek nerds are just like, oh, no, no.
3: someone can transport
2: when your shields are down.
3: <laughs> That's great. And it's and that moment's there, like it's if you're watching the movie, you it you can clock that you can see the through line, and then when Picard was like, "Oh shit!" when our shields are down, one of them must snuck through, and yeah, uh, that's a very like uh, Ridley Scott Alien concept. It just takes one, just one germ of a remainder, and the infestation can grow again.
1: Yeah, yeah. Well, well, one of the most terrifying aspects to the Borg that they added in this movie, which is like a brand new thing, is the concept of the Borg. Uh, turn Like assimilating people from the inside out. Specifically, they stick them with like two little wires that come out of their fingers, um, stick them in the neck, and then it like grows like organic mechanical nanobite shit and <laughs> stuff grows out of their head and they turn into a board.
2: Um, Science with Dr. Scott Correll. Yeah,
1: mm-hmm. Um, you're goddamn right. So, um, <laughs> but yeah, that was all invented for this movie because like, you know, previously the way that the Borg were done, is like they just, they, they cut off your arm and added something or added something to the arm that was already there or stuck some stuff on your eyes. And that was, that was kind of it. It wasn't right. an inside out sort of scenario. Put
2: you in a black one piece. Yeah. That's yeah.
3: tart. <laughs> yeah. It's a visceral, a, a, a child could easily wrap their head around this concept of, you know, like, don't let them touch you! Like, as soon as the bad guys touch you, you're dead, and you'll turn into one of those things.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Because, like, that's the scariest thing about the Borg, is that they destroyed the entire Borg cube, and the Borg sphere, and then one Borg, presumably the Borg queen, I I assume, it was just the Borg queen that came over, comes over, and then instantly just restarts the Borg. Like, just... Within hours, you know, they've assimilated dozens and dozens of crew members and turned an entire, like, multiple decks into what will eventually become a a Borg cube again. Um, That's scary. That's really scary. How quickly it happens is so scary.
2: Agreed.
3: (laughs) Uh, Another memorable saying. Apparently, it's kind of divided fans, but I'm a big fan of it. We get... Drunk Deanna Troy,
1: yeah, oh, love it. I love it,
2: love it. Because uh, I want to see my, I want to see him human. Like,
0: mm-hmm.
2: w- when do they ever drink actual alcohol? They don't. They drink synthahol, right? So, like, which is supposed to not give you a hangover or anything crazy. So, you see them like Deanna's trying to get information, figure out what's going on, save the entire Federation, as she knows it, and in order to do it, she has to have a drink with this guy she, had, you know, and she can't I, hold her liquor i had to take
3: three shots of something called tequila before he would even
1: right. tell me who he was <laughs> i
3: and can't
1: believe tequila is not still around There's, they don't
3: have synth tequila
2: <laughs> well you know after world war three when the uh, <laughs> uh agave plant is you know no more on the is that how you make tequila i don't know how you make tequila i yeah. think
3: what happened is at the end of the movie when the vulcans partied with zephyr cochran and the, and the humans i think you know, a hangover situation happened, and the Vulcans were like, "Okay, th- if we're going to do this, this is outlawed. <laughs> <You're>, <laughs> you don't get to have this anymore. <laughs> no more tequila. It's biological warfare. <laughs> you're lucky. You're lucky. We're still going to let Mexicans be in Starfleet." <laughs> <laughs> I also really, I think, the, the key to the this scene is so great is Riker is just so delighted by drunk Deanna, and they're not back together yet, right? I don't know, because no. like they.
2: They break up. She's dating Worf in the series finale. And then for generations, there's no romance. They don't rekindle the romance until the next movie. Yeah. So they're still just like buddies at this point. That's yeah. great. So he's like, ah, there's my ex. She can't hold her shit. <laughs>
3: yeah. Uh, now I have something to look forward to with Insurrection. Thanks, Dofty. <laughs> no, sorry. <laughs> oh, no, I, I've seen it. I forgot that happens. And so oh, I'm like, okay. yeah, that's coming yeah right it's it's great and you know like james cromwell just he's the george mcfly of this movie and yeah he, he's a delight he's a delightful character
1: uh he's so
3: good <laughs> but and you're right I, like, There's like, a reason like, they kept bringing him back he's so
1: good he's For so sure. good
3: and the idea yeah. of and that's also a very modern idea because like you know we're living in a post hamilton world where now gen z is learning what you know we all kind of learned at some point which is like oh yeah like The people on our coins and on our buildings and on our money, they were, like, really flawed people at Mm -hmm. best, if not outright bad people by our modern sensibilities. And, like, how do we reckon them being part of our legacy? Mm -hmm. And is it still worth even going forward if the people that built these were (sighs) kind of drunk assholes? (laughs) Yeah. Right, right and the crew being um, like yeah no it is we can we can help make him like a better dude this is how we make him a better dude
1: cuz there there's that great scene later with with Jordy where he's like talking about the statue and all of that and he's just like i just i, I and he he's so the the i lo- love the way that Cromwell plays it because he's he's not like he's not annoyed it's like he's he's playing annoyed but really he feels guilty because he's like you all think i'm a hero i know the truth i'm nothing all yeah. of this is an accident. Whatever any of you guys are talking about, it's an accident. I'm, an a-, I'm a drunk asshole who wants to get rich. <laughs> <laughs> well, and
2: then the line later when they're in the cockpit and Riker's like, you know, someone once said, don't try to be a great man. Just be a man and history will sort out the rest. And he's like, who said that? And he's like, you did, Doc, 10 years from now. like, yeah. And it's like, oh, did- yeah, man, just do shoot your shot and see what happens. And,
3: <laughs> and I love I love that the- he goes out of his way to say, I am doing this because I am poor and I want to be rich. Yeah, mm-hmm. I'm doing this for money. And it's, you know, like we create these myths of history where it was because of these big lofty ideals and stuff. And they're like, no, oftentimes it was just people <laughs> just wanted more money or more land. Yeah.
2: So in, in in riffing off this, if I can just jump to, I think it was Enterprise where they they did the episode where they go to Alaska and they find the remains or Antarctica and they find Borg remains. Mm-hmm. And someone's talking about an interview that Zephyr Cochrane gives later in his life, and he's like, "Yeah, he was starting to lose his mind and ramble about spacemen from the future and blah blah blah." Like, oh wow, it just goes to show that Zephyr Cochrane was always kind of batshit crazy. Like,
3: for sure, like
2: uh, straight on into the future.
3: All, there's all these like he's like Howard Hughes at the end or whatever. Yeah, <laughs> uh, they came back in time to save the human race. A part of the mo- had a statue. <laughs> the part of the movie that I played, pretend and recreated at countless. Home Depot's and doctor's offices is data and the Picard and the crew with their guns going down the hallway chasing board.
1: It it has what I can only describe as a laser tag aesthetic. Like yes. this
2: whole... oh big time. <laughs>
1: <laughs> it it wouldn't have worked with the little
2: hand phasers. You needed there needed to be like a call of duty element to this. Yeah,
3: Tofty, I'm glad you brought that up because I had that revelation watching the episodes even before the movie. It's really telling and cool that it is it does not look cool in Star Trek to fire a gun. No. Yeah. It's it's a goofy tool that you only use when you have to incapacitate or kill someone, right? But in this movie, you get these big honking cool laser tag rifles. And I know I've been critical of the militarization of Starfleet in the past, but to me, this was an example of, yeah, we have these because we need them sometimes, like right now. Yeah. Yeah.
1: Yeah,
2: absolutely. Yeah. It, it definitely would have, for a moviegoer, to not see something a little bit more familiar, I think, would have not hit home as well, mm-hmm. you know, if they didn't see a, a, something that looked more like a gun,
3: you right. know. Right. For sure. I love the moment where Data turns off his emotion chip and Picard's like, Data, there are times I envy you.
1: <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> God.
3: Uh, so good. Data gets captured and we meet the Borg Queen. We get that very memorable at the time, very state of the art visual effect where we see yeah. her her torso and the spinal cord yeah yeah that
1: that is um, uh, that was one of the very first things that they shot for the movie because they needed all of the lead time to get the fresh, the, the, the visual effect complete because wow. Frakes knew like this is the money shot. This is the thing that everyone's going to be talking about, and so I want to give our VFX. Imagine that thinking about the visual effects team and their way of life and, <laughs> and crazy. I really don't want to stress those guys out. Yeah, you know. <laughs> I want Got to give month. them as much time as I possibly can so they can get this done and done well. Right. Um, and, you know, I bet this takes a lot of work to do. This. <laughs> I should give them a heads up. Uh, just a few mouse clicks, right? Um, yeah. So. Uh, yeah, so this was this was done, and, and, and Frake's credits, um, uh, you know the 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 actress Alice C- Craig or Craig, um, it, he credits her because he was like she made it work, like she plays the moment as this, or like this this sort of combination of like orgasmic and pain, which is so funny that you brought up the Hellraiser thing, yeah, but but like. That moment of her reconnecting with her body, he was like, "You can
3: tell that it's sort of painful, but she kind of likes it." You get that moment of release <laughs> in her face, yeah. where she's like, uh, "Ah, yeah. yeah." And her whole character is very much based in like the and like flesh and pleasure mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. like whether it's a little muddied of like, is she tempting Data with flesh, but is he? Because like I I kind of respect nerds who are like the Borg Queen ruins everything. Like why do they? Why Why they're not supposed to have this kind of individual. But I think her kind of cryptic talk of, like, I am them, but I'm not them. Like, it works for right. me.
2: Yeah. And then future, you know, retcons of there always being a Borg queen. Like, they can always respawn a new Borg queen. Like, right. very, very beehive-like, I think, fixes some of that, too. Not that it is just this one individual, but it is. it is a role that gets filled by a, a drone of a certain,
1: yeah, whatever yeah. you know. Like, Though she does come back, right, Alice Craig. She she comes back and plays the board queen again in something. I don't
2: know that she ever did. I don't know if it was her, but I know there was Voyager episodes where the board queen shows up, and then there's the the Picard stuff where the board queen shows up. I don't know for certain if it's her specific. Is it her? Again. Is it
1: not her in um in Picard? I don't think so.
3: Oh, you know what's interesting? I don't believe so. The idea that it's like maybe a consciousness thing—that maybe this body that we're seeing is really only like as old as when the cube blew up. Right. That's why it takes Picard to be like, "Oh yeah, I do remember you." Uh, Like, yeah, you, you. I don't know if this is like your form, but like I remember there being like a queen there. Yeah. Oh, apparently she comes. She
1: came back for lower decks. That's the only time that she's recurring. Oh, okay. Uh,
2: yeah, I was gonna say. I think on screen it's always been someone different. Yeah, before. yeah.
1: There's been the the one of Picard is the third iteration of the Borg Queen. Yeah. Um. So this but, is uh, where uh, Data. the the, the design of the Borg Queen, um, was something that uh, Jonathan Frakes was sort of obsessed with because he wanted her to be the, the way he described. It, he was like, I want her to be sexy. I want you to want to have sex with her, but also be disgusted with yourself that you want to. And that's how he described it. And this is what they came up with. And I'm like, yeah, yeah, you guys nailed it. Yeah. You kind of nailed it. (laughs) (laughs) You kind of nailed it. The weird sexual tension
2: was very off putting to me on this watch. I guess I hadn't really thought about it much before, but it, it, it kind of jarred me this time. How she's like, in order to fully, uh, convert data to my way of being I also need to like consume him was yeah. kind of a lot to swallow this time and I guess maybe it's just one of those things of like movies of a different time sit differently now yeah Um. but I definitely like it's the first time I ever watched it and felt like oh I'm thinking about this and I have feelings about it yeah. now yeah like, yeah
1: well the whole concept I find, I don't know what they're trying to say with the concept of the data yeah. stuff in terms of like oh the Borg Known famously turning human flesh into machine is turning a machine into human flesh, and I'm like, okay, and that means what exactly? <laughs> well, it's it's the marriage
2: of the the organic and the inorganic that they sort of they try to you know um, exposition it in this film as like the, to attain perfection you need both you can't have one or the other it's right. the marriage of both right right, right. um.
3: And it kind of seems like they're, the Borg are a work in progress. Like, they come upon Picard and they're like, hey, we could use that guy as like a mouthpiece. Uh, uh, Locutus is Latin for spoken or having spoken. Mm-hmm. So he's meant to be like a mouth of Sauron type character. And so it makes, but it makes sense that maybe they came across Data and they're like, oh, wait, we can use this. So they're kind of always like improvising on the spot of how do we, what is their definition of perfection?
1: Yeah. Yeah. Um,
3: kinda like, I know. It's kind of it's 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 weird how that kind of is similar to Starfleet. Uh, they keep meeting these new creatures and races and in a much kinder way assimilate them into their ranks. Right. I also I want to clock this something that I noticed
1: about this that I just think is interesting. So. In Generations, we talked about this. In, in our episode, that Data, uh, upon getting the emotion chip, he suddenly gets a joke that was told to him in the very, very first episode, um, Encounter at Farpoint. Mm. And, uh, and, you know, starts, like, laughing. He's like, oh, that's a great joke. In this, uh, in this movie now, in First Contact, he makes reference to the very second episode of Star Trek The Next Generation, The Naked Time, or The Naked Now, where he uh, gets cornered by the queen, the, the Borg queen, and is like, she's like talking about sex, and he's like, I am fully functional, and I, I know multiple, uh, I, I'm, I'm trained in multiple um, uh, you know forms techniques. techniques and that is a quote <laughs> from The Naked Now the third episode where he he bones down uh, with a with a crew member and Tasha Yar yeah right? Tasha Yar exactly <laughs> um, and it's a very famous scene nobody likes it everybody hates it and it it sort of became like a meme of Data of like there's like shirts where it's like Data's face and it says I am fully functional um, you know sure. stuff like that <laughs> so it, you know it's just like this this meme and I just think it's so funny that that uh, the that first movie generations hits like references the first episode, and now this one references the second episode. Now I'm like, is Dina going to reference the third episode in insurrection? <laughs>
3: That's great. <laughs> yeah, you know, knowing ner- knowing knowing what I know about nerds, I know that it actually makes perfect sense that Star Trek is actually much much hornier than Star Wars. Hmm. Yeah. 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 You ever go to a con? It makes perfect sense.
1: Yeah, yeah. I mean, i've I've heard I've heard stories about the Star Trek cruise. <laughs> <laughs> That's what you say. C R U I S E, the, the cruise,
2: yeah. or the E-W-S cruise? <laughs> E W S cruise.
1: Sorry, I didn't follow that. But like a cruise ship, like it's like a uh, uh, Star Trek, uh, a, a con on a cruise. Um,
2: so who 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 works on a cruise? It's the crew, the crew on the cruise. Yeah, the crew, the cruise crew. Yep. That's that's the. I was confused because I didn't know which cruise. Oh, oh, oh! About. I see what
1: you're saying. I see. Sorry, yes, I'm yes, yes.
2: shoehorning a joke yeah. in where it doesn't fit.
3: Uh, uh, but uh, anyway, yeah, Star get, Trek is very horny. Cruise, cruise was uh, actually Gene Roddenberry's alternative title. <laughs> and we get the title drop in the scene where uh, Zefram Cochrane looks in the telescope, sees the Enterprise, and he goes, "Whoa, you guys are on some kind of Star Trek." yeah uh back on the enterprise lily meets picard they have like uh, they lead him to this lower area where he's able to show her the curvature of the earth and uh we get the cute moment where picard you know takes the ray gun away and is like oh this was on maximum setting you would have fucking vaporized me if you would have fired this <laughs> it's like sorry it was i'm my sorry first i ray just gun. hear you
2: I, I hear you saying that he took her down to the bottom of the ship and showed her the curve of the earth. And I'm just like, hey, baby, I'm going to show you the curve of <laughs> the earth. Yeah. It's all I hear uh, We were just Speaking talking about horny, Star, Star Trek, Star Trek. Yeah, horny. yeah.
1: Um But no, I love that scene because I love her just being like, sorry, I've never. It's my first ray gun. Yeah. <laughs> Such just, a good line. So line. great. Uh, she has great lines she's, in this. She's so
2: good at being bewildered in this whole movie. Borg sounds Swedish. Yeah. Like. Oh, man.
3: I remember the moment where Picard leads Lily through the hallways that have been infected by Borg and really being arrested and compelled by the way Alfrey Woodard plays fear. And mm-hmm. as a kid, it reminded me of like the way I was when I would be going through a haunted house and yeah. I'm like clinging to my mom the way that she's clinging to Picard and the Borg yeah. are slowly, they're still dangerous, but they're walking, you know, Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Man,
2: slow zombies are way scarier than fast zombies. I always and forever. Always,
1: I, uh, I I totally forgotten about the whole holodeck sequence, um, in this in this what? movie. Totally forgotten. It's love it. What shaking dicks? <laughs> love it. Usual. That's the first time.
2: I, this is the first time I remember hearing about safety protocols in the holodeck. I don't know that I ever clocked it when I was watching the show, but I was like, oh, they can oh, that's really interesting. They can turn off safety. Yeah. And then now it's all I ever think about. Whenever I see a holodeck scene in anything, Is like, oh, if you just turned the safety protocols off, you'd be dead.
3: Yeah, <laughs> yeah, it's true. We yeah. get the, uh, yeah, they go to the holodeck and it's like a 1930s. It's called the Big Goodbye, the program. Mm-hmm. Big mm-hmm. gangster sequence. You get the incredible shot of Picard in a white tuxedo mowing down Borg with a Tommy gun. Yeah, hell yeah. yeah.
2: Such a good and then like losing his shit and like uh, he's about to like smash one with the butt of the rifle made even more. I think uns- you got him
3: <laughs> made even more unsettling by the Lily's revelation that Picard knew this guy. Yeah, right. This was Ensign Which, Sykes or whatever.
2: Ensign Lynch. Yeah. So they they go through this um, whole movie. And there's this thing of Picard going like, you know, you're gonna be doing him a favor. Just shoot. Don't worry about it. Trust me, I know. I've been there. You're gonna be doing him a favor. And just the the disassociation that he's able to have just kind of shows his his trauma and it's the, the character explanation of Picard and his, you know, the the feelings he's harboring after all this is the older I am, the more I appreciate the part of this movie, right? Mm-hmm. The more shit I've dealt with, the more I appreciate how they made Picard deal with his shit in this movie. Yeah.
3: Yeah, absolutely. You know, uh, there was this moment last week Tofty, where Scott pointed out that they were during the commentary, uh, Ronald D e. Moore and, and the co-writer like were pecking at the scene where Picard weeps over the loss of his nephew, Renee. And it's like, ah, it's a little cringy. Cause dudes don't cry. And like, <laughs> It's so great to get, you know, like a like, uh, trauma has un- kind of almost become hackneyed at this point uh, in terms of like, like Wanda vision, the Halloween sequels, Harley Quinn, yeah. you know, throw a rock. And the, I, I just really appreciate that they do take the time to be like, no, that really, it that affected Picard, what happened to him in that episode. And yes, mm-hmm. we see him again and again, being this paragon of like fortitude and strength and sol- solidarity, but no, this really affected him. And he, he is, he can fall victim to feelings like vengeance and wrath and anger.
2: Yeah. Yeah, definitely.
3: It, and it, it's interesting too, that they, they had that perspective. And I think
1: it wasn't so much that like, it was a dude's not, don't cry kind of perspective. It was more mm. like, uh, you, this is the first time we're seeing Picard on the big screen. And, and in his, one of his first scenes, he's like openly weeping. He's like, I don't know if that's what people wanted. Um, which I can I can understand because they are also the guys who wrote the episode "Family," where Picard breaks down in his brother's arms, crying about like, "Oh my god, I I I I don't know who to talk to about what the Borg did to me." Like, uh, yeah, I yeah. you know, like I'm just out of it, and like, holy shit, it was so bad, it was so scary, and like, I don't know how to talk. I, you know, that's why I've been like so weird. So they wrote that episode. Oh. Cool. Um, so so I I don't think they're a, they're against Picard breaking down necessarily. They just like felt it was inappropriate in like his very first big screen outing. But they have a lot of criticisms about about generations. Um some rightfully so and others not not as much,
3: but mm. yeah. They don't they don't love that one. Not like this. <laughs> <laughs> uh we get uh, a, a moment that I really stuck out to me was like uh the Boar queen blowing on data is like Mm -hmm. skin graft and it it is compelling of like data's whole thing has been a quest for becoming more human and Mm -hmm. like contact skin pleasure even going back to picard touching the hull of the of the rocket like there are tactile parts of being a human that data hasn't been able to experience yet and when the board queen offers this to him almost in this kind of faustian bargain uh I I was I was like okay yeah that this checks out like I buy why he would be like oh my god I couldn't I wasn't I never had the opportunity for this before right
1: but right, apparently he did right. bone
3: down in episode three though
1: yeah he did he's fully functional yes um, it doesn't mean he enjoyed it yeah <laughs> right yeah well he, he 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 definitely didn't there was no concept for that for him <laughs> <laughs> uh, <laughs> uh, but uh, I think he enjoyed it this time um,
2: yeah. And the little wink of was it good for you that she gives again, yeah. just like the overt sexual stuff that I missed for a long time. Yeah, in this movie that is clearly there. Yeah,
3: uh, Toffee, you mentioned it earlier, but I love I love the chemistry between Jordy and Zephyrn Cochran. Of
2: yeah, like
3: I I shouldn't I shouldn't tell you this, but I actually went to Zephyrn Cochran High School.
2: <laughs> well, it's like Jordy is being he's very good at playing it cool so he's holding it all in and the thing that i think sells it is the little moment with reg barclay where he comes over and he's like oh i just have to tell you dr cochran this is the greatest thing and Jordy's like dude chill chill <laughs> like and then you know the, the you know what you're saying follows that immediately after he's like i can't blame him like yeah it's like if you met george washington like even if you don't know who this guy is, you you know who this guy is, yeah, right, right? He's right. one of those type of characters. Is that from Cochran?
3: Um, We um We've talked about lines that are just burned into your memory. And I think my favorite line in this entire movie is, you told him about the statue. <laughs> <laughs>
2: Which, again, is just Riker just shit-eating grin the whole time throughout this movie. You remember how to fire phasers. You told him about the statue. Yeah. All of that stuff. You
3: remember to fire phasers this is a great one, too. Yeah. 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 Uh, he's just so smiley. So back on the Enterprise, we get another memorable sequence: the zero g walk, the upside down walk. Oh yes. that's awesome. And Worf is also just so great in this whole movie. Yeah, like him being like the little moment where Picard's like, "How do you feel about you know zero g walks?" And he goes, "I, I, they make me sick to my stomach." And these little moments of vulnerability. Then he
2: realized what he's asking him. He's like, "Yeah, oh. yeah." You see the the
3: shoulders sink. <laughs> And it's so, he has a knife, he has a Klingon knife on him, on his little back sash. Yeah.
1: Yeah. The zero-G
2: moment is awesome, too, just because, like, when do you ever get to see the exterior of the ship that close up, too? Like, not since they were walking on the Enterprise in the first movie, right? Right. right. Like, you don't really see it up close that much, Mm -hmm, let alone the deflector.
1: There's also, I am such a, like, a a, a sort of, uh, like, aural fixated person in terms of like uh, there are certain sounds that like just trigger things for me and the sounds in this sequence do that like the sort of tactile nature of like the pulling the thing out and turning it and pushing it back in all of that stuff just like triggers things in the same way that like the card catalogs flying out in in ghostbusters triggers yeah. something in my my animal brain of just mm. like oh yeah <laughs> being a kid oh man crazy
3: the suctiony boots on the surface yeah 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 absolutely
2: and and the the whole drama of this sequence i know it's it's cut in between the um stuff on the ground going on too but like Worf gets a hole cut in his suit and he ends up tying it off with like the severed borg arm like
3: come on it's so good uh also we get assimilate this
2: yeah. Oh, right. Which was definitely a trailer line, yes. right? Had to have been a trailer <laughs> line. Yes. No doubt. Um, R.I.P. Hawk. I, I'm pretty sure. <laughs> sure that was the original title of the movie, right? Star Trek, Assimilate This. Or <laughs> yeah. Least... <laughs> it was,
1: or it was like the tagline yeah, on the poster. Yeah, <laughs>
2: yeah. Right. Or <Number> 21st, Assimilate
3: <laughs> This. That's <laughs> That's great
2: the uh well and then to, yeah. Scott not to overlook what you said too but you they we've had this character of Hawk throughout this whole movie who is a new character never been there before mm-hmm. they make us kind of like oh we recognize this guy and then they take him away yeah like j- like a just a really good piece of writing make you care about the guy so that when he dies it hurts a little yeah
3: yeah
0: like
2: you don't see it coming
3: right yeah you don't even realize you've become attached to this character mm-hmm. uh, right like oh shit
1: that guy died oh one thing that we haven't even mentioned <laughs> the new uniforms um oh yeah. Yeah, we should talk about that uh really quickly just in terms of like so the, these uniforms designed for this movie all of these costumes would then be used in DS9 uh following this movie. Um and uh I, what what do we what do we But not in Voyager. That? Not Voyager because they're 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 in space they're they're Right. lost in space. Um <laughs> I love that Voyager is just lost in space. Uh Right. But uh uh yeah, these were um I I just think these were I, I remember at the time thinking these were like just the coolest things I've ever seen. These 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 costumes, these uniforms. I, I really enjoyed
2: them and they're so different just in their monochromeness. Yeah. But they work. They look cinematic. It's to me it's akin to when original series went with the red jackets with the flap and the the shoulder strap thing like totally it's that big of a design change but it's iconic and to me like it just makes more sense on a on a like a working ship like this like okay it's a jumpsuit it's not spandex it's not like where where, like clearly there's a zipper clearly it's two pieces like it makes sense you can put it on and take it off you can probably go to the bathroom in it
0: like
3: Uh
2: it just makes a lot more sense
3: it looked comfy yeah, And, you know, to compare them to the, the big red grandpa sweaters with the strap, the these kind of become the de facto next generation movie uniforms for the rest of their mm-hmm. run. Mm-hmm.
2: Yep. Right. True. I
3: think That's they look true. really soft and comfy.
2: Yes. And they also do a really good job of like, okay, if you're ever looking to define an era in Star Trek timeline, right? Like, okay, you see someone in this outfit you know, oh, this takes place during, like, Dominion War era, right? This is, now we know where this fits in Star Trek canon.
3: Right, right, right. Yeah. I, um, I mentioned uh, I mentioned Worf being in fine form this whole movie. I love the scene where Picard's about to send, th- okay, do you want to talk about shit detail? The guy <laughs> whose job it is the whole movie is to go out and fight the Borg and every 10 minutes come back to the bridge, tell everyone how badly it's going, and then just going right back out there
2: yeah mm-hmm. and but and through the floor like, <laughs> right. he can't even use the doorways yeah. anymore uh, he's
3: like that guy in *Le Miz, you know he's got a bandage around his forehead <laughs> and Picard's like well go back out there and do it and Worf Worf is like whoa I that's a little too that's not right dude like you're <laughs> you're sending him out there to die we need to evacuate the ship and Picard's like you're a coward
2: Worf, who was literally going to ram the Borg cube in the first three minutes of this oh, movie. Oh, prepare
3: for ramming speed. That's another great line we skipped yeah. over.
2: <laughs> Today is a good day to die. All of those things. Him and
3: mm-hmm. Adam Scott were just about to ram directly into the Borg cube. Prometheus.
2: And now he's being called a coward in a stunning display of acting. Yeah. Yes.
3: And like, they're both on so on top because like, you buy, like, if you were any other man, I would kill you where you stand. Like, as a kid, I was aware that this had been a long-lasting show, and that I was like, "Oh, you could just feel the history between these two characters in that in that scene."
2: Well, and th- the two actors too, to 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 be able to display that chemistry, but also that restraint, even when they're going at each other verbally like that. It's like, okay, I'm this is me holding back right now. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like, yeah, I, uh, I, it's just I so I good. love
1: it, but I do think it's it it's so interesting. In Star Trek, because it's exactly the kind of thing that Gene Roddenberry would have like yelled at everyone he could have. Um, I thought about that
3: a lot yeah. during watching because I, I read a, I read an article about the impact that Best of Both Worlds had on Next Gen and Trek, and yeah. there it ended with this this paragraph about how like they were finally and you know all credit to Gene Roddenberry he created this this came from his brain but they reached a point when the nexion crew were in some ways free of his rigidity yeah and it's like yeah he probably would have hated a lot of this of yeah. um, and i think what the disagreement that i have with him i think from a distance is i find the struggle the momentary losing of the rope and grabbing it again to be very compelling yeah right
2: well and again as as the and flawed people that we all are right we can't see perfection reflected back at us and see ourselves in it we see ourselves in the struggle to attain right Mm -hmm. Um, and I think that's that's the beauty in this is like okay Picard we've seen him for seven seasons be like the most diplomatic you know level-headed captain out there and then it it really means something to see him lose it like this like it's it's more impactful because we haven't seen it before right like they saved it for the right moment Mm -hmm. is really what it boils down
3: to yeah yeah and then leading into uh, the best scene of the movie, in my opinion, where you know the ooby doobie. uh, yeah, yeah, we're, we're skipping straight to the end of the movie by <laughs> by <bye, Tophie>. Okay, <laughs> uh, <laughs> the we get two great actors just in a you know really well written scene where Alfre Woodard, because she doesn't have the fear that the rest of the crew have for Picard of like, oh no, the captain says we're all gonna die, we're all gonna die, because they love him that much and they're that loyal to him. But Lily is like, no, screw that, and really challenges him. And provokes him. And I I really like his insult of like, how dare you say that I'm even capable of feeling such base emotions like vengeance. And Lily just stays on him. And then, yeah, we get the classic like, no, like, you know, shattering. (laughs) You broke your little ships. (laughs) And and having watched (laughs) Q Who and Best of Both Worlds, I found Picard's monologue even stronger now than I did years ago. Because when he's like, no, we always do this. We always fall back, we always retreat, and I'm like, "Oh, fuck, that's right, like they've never this is just how it's been, and he's like, "No, the line must be drawn yeah. here, this far, no further,
2: oh, this far, no farther, yeah, fuck, you. God damn, so good, yeah, yeah, it's it's intense, and again, I feel like that is that could have been the Guinan speech, right the the sort of conscience, the the jiminy cricket in the ear, mm-hmm. um." And she just delivers it masterfully. You know, she matches him dynamically, matches him with intensity. When he's up, she's up. When he's down, she brings it back down. It is it is a symphony. If you just close your eyes and listen to that scene, mm-hmm. it's so fantastic.
1: Well, and the difference between Lily performing the scene and Guinan performing the scene is that Guinan recognize it, would be recognizing what was happening with Picard at, in almost, like, a mm-hmm. metatextual level, where she's, like, right. so far beyond and above him that she's, like, you know, th- like spelling out what is going on with him, whereas, like... Like,
2: guiding him to the answer that he knows he needs to reach.
1: Right, whereas in this, it's like Picard feels that he is so much above Lily in terms of, like, I, you know, I am part of a utopian society. You are are like, you know, one step away from being like in a world war. Like, right. it, you know, you you are so controlled by your emotions. I'm so beyond this, and he, she's like, and yet I see myself in you. So what does that tell you? You know, and that's so much more interesting. I think the, dramatically, th- yeah. and
2: in the the most Jean Lucy way that he comes to his senses is when someone quotes literature to him yeah. like to, to me that's perfect she's just like bah gotta be ahab get your little whale huh and he's like ah now i understand melville <laughs> uh, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> drops uh. a quote says the whole thing and then just the piece there is resist all she just goes actually i never read it
3: oh god that's <laughs> so good
2: such a 21st century thing. <laughs> yeah
3: and it's it's great because it kind of it, in this little moment i guess again to counter star wars is culture exists in star trek people people Mm -hmm. read poetry and listen to music and experience art and hang it on their walls and their quarters and the idea that yeah it takes this work of literature for picard to kind of catch himself and lily isn't like an egghead she has she's never read the book she knows what we know about moby dick which is like oh yeah guy dies chasing a whale yeah
2: right (laughs) and his name is ahab that's it Mm -hmm.
3: seemed like an asshole yeah, yeah. <laughs> I think yeah. With respect to Whoopi Goldberg and Guinan, I think Lily being like the everyman character and being like this voice that's able to speak to Picard from an outsider perspective is yeah, like really more compelling than what Tofti said of her being this guiding Yoda like mentor. Yeah, in in this instance, in this instance I think
2: there yeah. are definitely times where that's necessary. I think this just calls for something different. Yeah. This, especially coming off the heels of Generations too, where Guinan was such a big part of it, for right. Sure.
3: Uh, the phoenix launches we get the moment where he's like oh no oh shit we can't we can't launch without this and, and, and we, have this. we have to cancel we have to cancel jordy yeah. abort abort and, <laughs> and he pulls out a mixtape and he plays this is important he plays a cover of magic carpet ride by steppenwolf and i think it had to be a cover because if you he, if when he presses play it jumps right into magic carpet ride yeah, but if you ever listen to Steppenwolf, it has one of those weird seventies like it's going to sound like bullshit for thirty seconds, and then the song's going to start.
2: <laughs> yeah, what you don't know is it's actually his custom mixtape. It's you know it's in the future those little octagonal discs. <laughs> you just take your Spotify playlist, and you can download the whole thing after that, <laughs> and you can customize the start and end points. It's just the, all the finest points of technology. That checks.
3: Yeah. Oh, you oh you
2: want to? I have that on pre-order on Kickstarter right now.
3: <laughs> Good. You want to talk about tactile? Like, yeah, that even that little device, that little silver, that 90s green disc. I'm like, oh, I yeah. want to hold that yeah. so bad. Yeah.
2: Yeah, it's just a piece of, like, lucite that was cut. <laughs> yeah. It's like like some something from a game board. Like, we found this, in, like, uh, this piece from uh, the Game of Life. We're not using this, right? Well that's our new music player. Uh, Ugh.
3: Back on the ship, they're evacuating. We get that great moment where Picard tells Worf, I actually think you're the bravest man I've ever known. And again, like restraint of like, Worf's mm-hmm. not gonna like hug him, but you can tell on his face, like, right. I really, re- I really respect this guy. That means,
2: yeah. Picard being the guy who like was his basically lawyer through all his family drama, like those two, the bond between Worf and Picard is also really explored in some of the episodes on the TV show. So that's it. it was really nice to see again them boil over, but then also be able to bring it back and mm-hmm. and, and, and you know. Remember who each other are to one another. Yeah. So,
3: Scott, you and Bethany have been rewatching a lot of Next Gen leading up to these movies. Did a lot of that like play even better for you in First Contact, having rewatched a lot of the episodes?
1: Oh yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, I mean, you know, it's God. Next Gen holds up. Uh, it's kind of it's kind of crazy how well it holds up. Uh, you know, not so like the first two seasons are a little bit of a, more of a mixed bag, but everything before best of both worlds
2: is, is it's still trying to be the original series. I think that again, to me, that's like, yeah, that's where it changed. Yeah.
1: Yeah.
3: Right. Cause I haven't seen like what, what you're describing, like Picard getting involved in the interior legal drama of Worf's family Mm -hmm. that I can't imagine anything like that happening with those old scientists. Right. (laughs) right. It's true. They didn't really get into the, their interior lives as much.
1: Yeah. Right.
3: Um, uh uh,
1: uh Bra- braga and and more um they uh describe picard's story in this as uh die hard on the enterprise and uh <laughs> <laughs> And as he starts losing <laughs> layers of clothes, I'm like, hell yeah! Because like honestly, like Patrick Stewart got oh, ripped. Oh, in oh, this. Oh, now
2: I have a blaster.
1: Yeah, <laughs> R- R- like R- Patrick Stewart got ripped in this. I was like, I, there, yeah. were, there was like when he's like swinging when the when the flesh eating uh, uh fog machine starts up uh, at the base of the of of um the, uh, the engineering warp core or whatever, and he's yeah. like swinging on stuff, and I'm just like, damn, dude, like, you worked out. Look at that. And, you know, <laughs> I'm just, I'm just, I I associate him so much as, like, elderly statesman Patrick Stewart now that, like, I forgot but, that there was a period of time where he, where he was pretty buff. But even then, he was old. Like, he's always looked old, so that was particularly surprising. Yeah,
3: and, yeah. you know, we've talked about how, like, what a big upgrade this is from Generations. I think one of the most awkward sequences of Generations is the, like, really poorly choreographed old man fight. Yeah. Between yeah. him and Malcolm McDowell and William Shatner. And he's even older in this and just the way they're shooting it and the choreography and you're seeing you're actually seeing that he has muscle. He's not just wearing his weird puffy Starfleet uniform. Yeah. They're just right. Freaks hooks him up better and you kinda you buy him as an action hero in this last sequence. <laughs> yeah. I'm gonna make you look good. Yeah. Don't worry, Pat. Man. Yeah. So we also get uh semi fleshy data with little tuft of Brent Spiner hair. Yeah,
1: there was there were rumors at the time that they were like I remember um Trekkies being like, "Oh, and then this is going to be how they write out uh Brent Spiner because he doesn't want to be Data anymore. They're going to write him out by like they're removing his flesh hmm. and when they replace it, he'll be a new actor."
2: Oh, I see, I don't remember that, but that sounds like something that definitely would have happened. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Well, see, Jordy loses the vidor, visor, and Brent Spiner just gets to be in normal skin. That's what happens in the next movie. Yeah. <laughs> Spoiler alert, Nick.
3: <laughs> and then does it go back? Because in Nemesis, he for sure doesn't have. No, I'm kidding. He, he totally goes. I can't goes, tell he's, anymore. He's it's an the same tone when you're serious <laughs> and joking. You have to differentiate.
2: <laughs> um no he uh it's it's funny because there's almost like that thought of like he's gonna go on and okay this is data's next evolution but it it, it isn't he's back to like gold skin data by the next movie
1: yeah
3: okay yeah. and you're serious so all at that point i believe it
2: he can remove his emotion chip at that point i think in this one he can turn it off but in the next one he can actually take it back out again
3: oh with a little flick of his yeah. neck yeah yeah they
2: uh, got to be real careful when he sneezes.
3: <laughs> they uh, they best the Boar Queen. She disintegrates, never to be seen or heard from again for the rest of the franchise. <laughs> we uh, we learn we get that moment with Data and Picard where he's like, "I did consider it for like you know point eight seconds, you know, which for an android is a lot." Whereas I get get out of here, you knucklehead! Yeah, <laughs> you knucklehead! Freeze frame, roll credits. Yeah. Android, oh. the <laughs> but we get first contact.
2: So I have a question for you. Mm-hmm. Did you remember knowing who the aliens were going to be before you saw the movie that made first contact?
1: Like the first time I saw it or just the first time you saw it? Oh, yeah. I I had no idea that it was going to be Vulcans. Yeah, same.
2: I I I was completely clueless. I was like who's it going to be? Is it going to be like some random alien? Is it going to be I don't know. A Gorn? <laughs> I had no idea. So when the Vulcans come out and they do that big reveal, you're like oh my god yeah yeah and i feel like again from this point forward is where in star trek canon they're like and the vulcans and the humans helped form the federation like this was the movie i yeah. think that may have established
1: that yeah uh bethany called this every beat of this uh like when the ship is land <laughs> the ship was started landing and she was like is it vulcans and I, and I was like, uh, and she's like, oh, are they going to come out like wearing a hood and they're going to drop the hood and reveal the ears? <laughs> like, it was like every beat of it. She just called.
0: <laughs>
1: like, she sounds like a lot of fun. <laughs> just
2: like eight ball quarter pocket just absolutely called. Is that it his shot. sled? Is Rosebud
1: his sled? <laughs> it's his sled, isn't it? It was, so, it was so funny. I was like, damn, wow. And you I, had I, this movie's number.
3: <laughs> there's something I've noticed about comic books that I admire from a distance where coolest idea wins. Mm-hmm. Like if something really works in a story or is really cool and readers really latch onto it, it just becomes like, yeah, Bruce Wayne has a son. His name is Damien. He's a little asshole. Yeah. It's great. Yeah. And yeah. as soon as it becomes, as soon as it is revealed that we made first contact with the Vulcans, it just feels so perfect to me. Yeah. Like, yeah, of course there are. Yeah. No, it friends. makes
2: perfect sense because they're also like in Star Trek, the first alien that you ever saw in a Star Trek show, I'm pretty sure is yeah. Spock, right? Right, mm-hmm. right. So it totally makes. It, sense. And and there's it, so much it, it love means... for that in general. Yeah. That why not? You know, we don't see a lot of Vulcans in the Next Generation. It was such a big part of the original series that I felt like they were kind of like, well, let's do something else. Yeah, you yeah, know? yeah.
1: I I think the thing too is just like right away your your mind is racing about like. Oh, those initial few years and the and, and them being like like what the hell is this, you animals? Like why do you <laughs> why do you why are you driven on emotions, you idiots? Like World and like, why War are
3: you, three? <laughs>
1: yeah. <laughs> there were two of these? Yeah. Why are before you, this one? You know, why are you so stiff and boring? Like you can mm-hmm. see all of that conflict and everything just like playing out and which which
2: brings me to the ooby dooby and james cromwell trying to get him to dance to roy orbison is just priceless and the the vulcan's just like no i'm gonna sit down and drink this alcohol instead
3: (laughs) (laughs) it's great it's almost mythic of like this goofy lanky human dancing and the stern vulcan just kind of watching like okay i see you're doing that (laughs) yeah. <laughs> so
2: the thing, I watched it, I started it last night, fell asleep, and then finished it this morning again. The thing that bugged me this time watching the ending is they do the hand gesture and the Vulcan says, in perfect English, live long and prosper. Now, Cochrane doesn't have a universal translator. Did the Vulcans study English and learn it that quickly that they could translate their language? Like- um, I mean that's just like the the, the I don't it, have an answer for that. It's but. pretty
1: shoddy pseudoscience, the whole universal translator thing. So my True. my no prize answer is that the the universal translator is broadcasting
3: out of the ship.
2: Oh, okay. Yeah, okay. That works. I'm fine with that. Yeah.
3: That's <laughs> yeah. So in, in Star Wars there is a language called BASIC that is right English. And then you have people like, you know, Cassian Andor didn't grow up speaking basic. He spoke like another language. But correct. Right. But in in Star Wars in Star Trek, it is canonically the, the Queen's English.
2: In in Star Trek, it's they speak their own language, and members of Starfleet in their comm badges or on their tricorders or whatever have a universal. It's much more akin to like the babblefish Fish from uh, Hitchhiker's Guide. Yeah, like it sure. translates in real time for you, so you can hear. In your own native tongue. Right. And then, like, so the episode when Picard gets stuck with the dude who's, like, a Darmok d- and Jihad at Telagra or whatever, like, he can't – the universal translator doesn't have the ability to understand that language because it's based on contextual metaphors. So, like, it doesn't have those metaphors in his database. It can't translate that language.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: Um, okay. I
3: also would accept My sister who is a <laughs> French
2: teacher always uses that episode to teach about language differences to her
3: students. I love that. Anyway,
2: continue. <laughs> That's great. That's the same sister who got me into Star Trek. Hi, Suze.
1: My Hi. my favorite moment is just such a small random moment in this last scene where where uh they're sitting at the at the the bar table together. Zephyrin gets up to go play the song, and as soon as he gets out of his chair, another Vulcan comes and sits down. <laughs> and I, like, he was just waiting to have an
3: opportunity to sit.
1: I traveled
2: 30 million miles, and boy, are my legs tired. <laughs> just
3: like, oh, thank God, I'm going to sit. <laughs> or it's like, oh, the seat is unoccupied, I will fill the seat so that the seat is yeah, not And Logically, unoccupied. this
2: seat is now free.
3: Yes, <laughs> I love that. If the,
2: if the sitter stands up, then is the seat taken? No, if then, logically
3: is dibs, like, in the first, like, ten things that the Vulcans ever learned about humanity?
2: It's actually the first Ferengi rule of acquisition. Oh, oh that's true. Dibs. <laughs> but, uh, so,
3: they, uh, they're on the, they're on the deck of, wait, where are they? So, can we talk oh, that's about right. real Oh, no, right, I got yeah, 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 that ends with the We, doing, yeah. we,
2: we, we sort of missed a little bit when they're gonna blow up the ship, that the plan was blow up the ship and everyone takes an escape pod to live in 21st century earth yeah, on an right. island right like that's the plan go down land on an island don't be part of history that was going to be the whole survival plan mm-hmm. which i want to see that star trek like that to me can you live in a society without impacting the timeline for an extended pe- like that's that's compelling like that's a show of something right there and i love that idea um I just think it's a fascinating. Like that's almost what we got to in this. It movie. happens yeah. a lot
1: in Doctor Who. It does. That's true. Yeah, that's true. Um, but yeah, no, they just uh, they just go right back through the that time travel hole. I don't know. <laughs> that's just there in space, um, right? And uh, and and go back to the future. Everything's fine. And then Picard does his like make it so, and then. Yeah, and then we get the end, and that's the end. Yeah. So an insurrection, With great music. Yes, definitely. Yeah,
3: an insurrection. Do we meet the Enterprise F? No,
2: N- no. We actually, we the E is there forever mm-hmm. until the end of the movies, and then from what I understand, the next Enterprise that we see on screen, if I remember correctly, is a shot of some future where there's like an Enterprise J. Oh. But it's, a, like, it's like a background shot in an episode of, like, Enterprise during the Temporal Wars or something. I'm trying to remember where Enterprise J comes from, but that's the next letter in my head that is actually canonically an Enterprise that has, like, been designed and visualized.
1: Do they mention on uh, Picard what became of the E? like what what crew took it over for after so them? I don't
2: know, but if you read the Picard n- novels, like the first Picard novel, I believe Worf in the first novel is the captain of the Enterprise. Oh. I'm trying to remember. I might be spitting bullshit here and if I am, I apologize, but I I seem to believe that in at least in the first season of Picard Worf was captain of the Enterprise. Okay. If, and I don't remember if it was a new Enterprise or not. Um, and again, if I'm wrong on that, you know, you call me out in the comments or whatever. I don't know whatever you do on the Internet these days.
3: Are all of the novels and stuff prior to like Discovery, you know, the streaming explosion? Have those been like softly decanonized or like they were like never we're, canon? Okay, they
2: were, I don't think they were ever. Canon. Yeah. I don't they, even know that the Picard ones are officially canon.
3: Yeah. Okay. Tre- Trek
1: fans are um are are very specific about if it's not in front of a camera, it's not canon. Yeah. <laughs>
2: There are several novels which were just novelizations of episodes. Yeah. <laughs> like I remember fondly having the the novel of the episode with Scotty and the uh, the Dyson sphere. Mhm. Yeah. I don't know. So. But anyway, I'm excited to see what happens in the new season of Picard because I love my next generation and this movie uh uh is probably the best outing of them together. Mm -hmm. To date. Yeah. So, yeah.
1: I am very excited to revisit Insurrection. Uh, It is the weirdly, it is the next gen movie with the largest budget, almost twice the budget of First Contact. Um, And uh, I, the, the, uh, the story of Insurrection, the making of Insurrection is fascinating uh, in terms of like just development hell. Um, and I can't right. wait to talk about that next week, but, uh, um, I
2: can, I, I'll give you my quick thoughts on it. Cause I'm not going to be on the episode. It is the highest budget episode of the TV show yeah. that they ever produced.
3: Yes, that's true.
1: That is, that accurate.
2: sums up my thoughts on that one. That is very accurate. Yeah. And I
3: think, you know, unlike insurrection and generations, like a key thing of first contact is it, it feels like a movie. Yes. Yeah.
2: Which Star Trek struggles with a lot, I think you know it, my number one criticism of a Star Trek movie, if and when it comes out, is like, well, it just feels like one of the episodes, yeah, and I don't know if it's because the stakes aren't high enough or if it's shot in a weird way, but this one is like it's a, it's a cinematic experience, and like I said, it still holds up, it still looks great
1: i think I think a large thing of like what works and what doesn't in terms of a star trek movie is is the character arcs. You know, in order to feel like a movie, it needs to have a full character arc of, like, you know, your your characters that you watched on the TV show go from point A to point C, and B is the movie. And they will never look back. Like, they're not—it's not a return to the start kind of story like the TV show always was. Um, So,
3: yeah. Yeah. Like, in the Hey Arnold movie, uh, (laughs) Helga and Arnold kiss— and yeah. you're like, holy shit, you can't go back from that. The show's gonna be really different next time I see it. And then at the end of the movie, they just like, Oh, that was bullshit. We didn't mean to do that. And you're like What? No, what? That didn't matter. Where yeah. did I why did I go see this? Yeah. If I can if I can leave with one thought,
2: it's the entire time that all that shit was happening on the Enterprise, Riker and his crew on the ground are just like Ah, the phones are probably just down. They're fine. <laughs> the whole time. They had no idea any of the shit with the Borg happened. Yeah. None. Yeah. So they get back to the ship, and I can just imagine them being like, wait, what? <laughs> what happened? Why has everything got all these wires all over it? I'm sorry. You, <laughs> you guys didn't think to, like, fire a flare or something? You
1: you almost told us to just stay on
3: Earth forever? Like, that's, <laughs> that was wow. almost the plan? Yeah jesus they really they found they found a way to combine wrath of khan and voyage home
1: yeah
2: yeah they really did yeah it was it's a great film it's great
1: uh tofty uh you have a new album coming out is that right uh i have i've
2: been putting singles out okay. over the past couple months so i have a new single out right now uh my my group after the echo just put out a single called kiss me goodbye so if you like Rock and roll with synthesizers that you can dance to. You can go check that out at aftertheecho.com or follow us at after the echo or get it on any streaming service that you do like. You know, give us a follow.
1: Yeah, definitely. Um, check check all of that out, everybody, and we will be back next week with Star Trek Insurrection. Bye.